detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Care Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing super duper. We have a long weekend, so tomorrow I can sleep in, which is great. The snow doesn't stop, and I keep on shoveling, but neither does the movie watching, and we've got quite a lineup of different films and TV shows to get ourselves acquainted with. Yeah, yeah, we do. It, it, it's actually pretty cool because this is the first time in quite a while, I feel like, that we have a uh, podcast together where it was just you and I on Phantom Galaxy. We've had so many uh, guests and different shows going on um, that uh, this, this is the first time probably this year proper that you and I have just sat down and podcast where it was just, just the two of us. So, um, but, you know, that's allowed us, it's, it's uh, February, mid-February, a little bit beyond, and we've Got all of our best of the year lists out of the way, and uh, we got a, a cool Strange Frequencies episode up for um, uh, Best Love Songs with Ryan Stockstead, so that's out there. And uh, we're just trying to get uh, get ready for the rest of the year. I have a lot of cool shows and lots of different uh, segments we want to do, and a lot of great guests that we're just trying to shuffle and, and figure out. And But uh, we're looking forward to doing this movie review episode much more regularly so i would we're going to aim for you know uh every two weeks or you know uh every week depending on when we get these recorded my goal is to record them and keep it kind of uh you know kind of fast and loose and 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 release them as is for the most part meaning that once we bill and i record i will basically uh get them edited and and up either that day or the next day so I, I really like these episodes because one, I just get to chew the fat with Nathan, one of my best friends. We get to talk movies. But on the other hand, these ones are always less pressure. Not that the other ones are pressure filled or anything. I have no anxiety. I can chew the fat with anybody. But it's just kind of nice to just kind of go with the flow, take notes on what you've seen, try to keep up with kind of what's current, and then go back to ones you haven't seen for a while. And it's a nice, easy flow. And I, I know that the listeners just like, hearing us without any specific theme or I, at least I hope they do. Yeah. And they, we just kind of, as I say, shoot the breeze about movies of, you know, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, comedy, documentary. It's like whatever. the Siskel and Ebert show at this point. Yeah. So the review episodes. Except I'm the, I'm the new guy with the dreads. <laughs> right. So we're, uh, we're going to, we're going to do this much more regularly. And we're also going to start, I will, I'll mention at the end of the podcast, 
uh, sort of an addendum that we'll start doing to these, not this episode, but starting with the next review episode uh, that will incorporate something that uh, that we've been working on and recording, and I uh, will discuss that at the at the end of the episode. But first, we do have a big lineup of movies. There's been a lot of stuff releasing to theaters. There's been a lot of stuff releasing to uh, streaming. And I figure we might as well start, uh, Bill, with the the 300-pound Texan in the room. <laughs> that, I was going to say, start with something fluff or with just the, go right for with, the jugular. With, with the... Uh, <laughs> With the uh, chainsaw. So, Bill, you want to say... Go ahead. I I was just going to say that I was on with uh, Greg Amortis. He comes on every Sunday. And I said, the movie we're about to discuss is probably the most hotly debated film in this genre since It Follows. (laughs) I I could see that, yeah. Although, you could almost say maybe since Halloween Kills in back in the Oh, that's true, yeah. That, that got a little bit of a talking point here and there. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. It came out on Thursday night, Friday of, of the of this past week. And I was a little late to the game. I didn't see it till like two days later. Everyone else, the whole world seems to have seen it that night. But I've got family stuff. So I got to it when I could. It's directed by David Blue Garcia who had only directed one other film called Tejano, but he was a, he's a cinematographer who was in such movies as Bloodfest. So the guy has been around a while, and I guess he had this opportunity given to him, and he jumped with it. Uh, it stars Sarah Yarkin, who was in Happy Death Day 2, and Elsie Fisher, who was in Despicable Me, Despicable Me 2, obviously her boys, and Castle Rock, the TV show, has Mark Burnham, who was in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Third Rock from the Sun, you know, a a veteran TV actor. Jacob Lattimore, who was in The Maze Runner, and Superfly, 2018. Uh, Olin Fauver, who's in Mandy. Or Owlin, Owlin Fouer, Mandy. Did I pronounce that wrong? How how should I pronounce it? I think that's right, Bill, yeah. And William Hope, veteran character actor who's been in such movies as aliens and hellbound hellraiser 2. but what i was really happy to see and hear was the voice of mr john laroquette who did the intro <laughs> yes. in the 1974 toby hooper who apparently was paid a joint as he was just out of ucla law or uh, film school and that was his payment but it's great to hear him whenever i think of him it's either night court or summer rental those are the two. <laughs> I forgot that he was in Summer Rental. Was in Summer yeah, Rental? He's the, he, yeah, uh, he was the one who they were in line for the movies, and he offered to pay for the wife and the kids. Oh, nice. I also think of him with that really kind of bad movie he made with uh, Kirstie Alley in the 80s or the early 90s called Madhouse. Oh, boy. I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've extracted that from my brain. <laughs> The other thing I noticed right away, and anybody who knows the horror slash sci-fi genre will recognize it was co-written by Fede Alvarez, uh, who directed The Evil Dead, uh, Don't Breathe, and The Girl in the Spiderweb, among others. So it comes from people who have an eye towards, let's just say, blood. Okay, and so the IMDb description is, after nearly 50 years of hiding, 
Leatherface returns to terrorize a group of idealistic young friends who accidentally disrupt his carefully shielded world in a remote Texas town. So this is, as originally conceived, a continuation of number one 50 years later. I think in the vision of Mr. Garcia, we are to exclude everything that happened after number one until this one. So all of the Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw 2, 3, Dave Becker's favorite number four, all the ones that have happened in the last 20 years, the reboots, wipe them from your brain when you watch this. So if you want to watch the Toby Hooper classic, my favorite all-time horror film, and then go right to this. And that's the timeline that we're working with here. It also opens with an oral recap of the original with uh, newspaper clippings and pictures from the original by John Larroquette in the opening. So if you were completely too young to have remembered it or you didn't watch it or you just needed an, a slight rehash, what have you, they gave you kind of the basic idealistic bones of what happened in that story. So it opens with four friends on a road trip in Texas. Okay. They meet a local individual at a gas station. They take off. They don't really want to associate with the locals. And then they meet the sheriff and deputy of Harlow, Texas, kind of warning them of where are they going? We don't get many visitors. Why are you coming through? Seemingly suspicious, but at the same time, giving them a bit of a heads up. So what ends up happening is the group invests in the small town of Harlow, Texas. It's a town that has been abandoned and has obviously at one point was a, I wouldn't say thriving, but a, a successful uh, town that the local businesses have dried up. Uh, I'm assuming either the mining or whatever industry was in town has not been successful and everything was gone except for one woman who in one of the buildings claimed ownership of it. And she ran uh, a house. Uh, what, what do you call it? An adoption an house, orphanage, an orphanage house. And she is not going to give the place up. And let's just say things get a bit heated with one of the younger individuals who are going to be taking over the place. And she has a medical emergency. Now she gets, she starts convulsing on the ground. They bring the ambulance. Her son comes in from upstairs to go with them in the ambulance. She's in pretty rough shape and she doesn't make it. And so the interesting part of this is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't actually see a chainsaw until the 50 minute mark. His first kills are with hands, with a gun, with a knife. Uh, there's one with a sledgehammer. But I will say that if you remember the original, the first kill that you see is a slam over the head with a sledgehammer as well. So I guess it's a bit of an allusion to the first one. I will say they did not scrimp on the gore. There is the influence of Fede Alvarez. If you remember watching the reboot of Evil Dead, that at a certain point is just a fountain of blood. It's just people shoving sharp objects into Lou Taylor Pucci for like 20, 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. The various body parts being chopped off, yeah. people's uh, legs being caught under vehicles and blood just spraying out of the ground. 
It's the only this, time I saw someone get butterflied like a shrimp by a chainsaw <laughs> was in yeah. that film. This is very much of that ilk. If you love your for blood sure. like if you love your blood like I do, if you love for the most part it was uh cosmetic effects. Uh, there was some CGI, obviously, and I can always pick out when there was CGI, but there was a lot of blood, and I will give them full kudos for that. They must have gone through gallons and gallons and liters and liters of, uh, uh, what do you call it, corn syrup with red dye, because that's what they went through. And you also, I got a bit of a 2018 Halloween vibe from the film. Uh, kind of because in this one, Sally Hardesty, who survived the first one back in 74, comes back to seek some vengeance. And so there's that aspect of will Sally survive him again? Uh, will she get her piece off of Leatherface? Um, you, the, There are some problems to this film. I mean... I get the notion that you check your brain at the door when you're going to watch a movie like this. And as uh, Greg Morgan points out, people, you don't realize how bad the acting was for those 80 slashers. We all hold dear. I get it. You're not going to get Kathy Bates type for performance in a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the acting was awful. It was not believable, but it, it didn't have to be. You're there to see people get killed. And you didn't care who the who got killed because you really didn't care for any of the characters. I did notice, I don't know if you noticed, Nathan, there's a movie theater in town. And if this place has had, you know, the wind blown through it and it's been down for a while, some of the posters in the background looked pretty recent. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I didn't see which movies they were, but they didn't look like the faded ones from, you know, they're not showing rollerball. Well, you know, if you like. if you've honed in on that detail, you've honed in on probably the least like noticeable flaw <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> it's just me. It's just yeah. me. Now there was there's certain points where I, I'm I'm not going to get into the the inner depths of this. There are bodies to be killed. Leatherface gets them one after one after one. Lots of blood, lots of chops, some really good kills. Okay. I'll give you that. There's one scene where Leatherface chases a victim down the road. And I wrote down watching Leatherface waddle slash run down Main Street after Lila was just sad. He was just kind of waddling <laughs> around. Yeah. He's got his he's got his like his meat carver's apron on and he's waddling down. <laughs> I don't quite get it because uh, there's no real spoilers in this, but no. you know, physically speaking, they've definitely tried to go more of like a, he's more imposing and he, he his physique is a little more svelte than than I remember the dude from the '74 who who could who could run at a pretty good tilt after the yeah. cars. He, I mean, he's obviously okay. I'll get into it after. I'll, I'll hold that point yeah. for me. Um. You know, there is an ending that I didn't necessarily see coming, which I was actually quite uh, happy with. I liked it because the characters are annoying. I've seen online uh, one particular character compared to Franklin. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far, but at least Franklin, you know, the, at least he was somewhat endearing. 
if you want to call them that. I didn't find any of these people particularly endearing. I didn't care who went first. You know that they're just lambs to the slaughter. You just want to see some good kills because you're not here for the cinematography. You're not here for cohesion. You're not here for Emmy award-winning acting. You're here to see blood, boobs, and kills. And I mean, they, they give you what you, what you want. At the end of the day, I gave the film a six and a half, which is a bit of sitting on the fence. It does come from the right spot of the filmmaker. Like it, it's trying to connect the dots from the beginning. It does have really good kills. It does have a crazy bus scene. It does have odes and Easter eggs to the original. But there were parts where I found it, it kind of dragged a little in the middle. I, like I knew people were getting killed. And I was kind of like, come on, let's get on with it. Let's just get them killed. Because I don't need character development. Because I'm not going to get the writing in this. Six and a half, I thought, for me... Now, part of my problem is my all-time favorite film is number one. And when you hold it to that standard, everything's going to fall. But I do say it's better than some of those ones that you saw in the theaters in the last 15 years. So it's somewhere in between. I will say that make sure you watch right till the end. That's what I'm going to leave it with. And the last thing before now, I when get you to say you, right to the end, Bill, do you mean through the credits? Through the credits. Okay. Cause I didn't watch, do that. So. Oh, watch right to the end. Okay. Um, one last thing, and then I'll let you get your point of view across, Nathan. If this is a direct sequel 50 years later, I'm going to conservatively say that Leatherface would be 75. Does he move the way your average 75-year-old would? Again, check your brain at the door. Don't expect logic. Don't expect cohesion. Uh, you know, I've been at this game long enough to dispel belief a lot at times. But if you're directly going 70, uh, 50 years later, is a 75-year-old man going to be able to nimbly swing a chainsaw, a, um, a huge mallet, be able to gut somebody? I don't know. I'm not here to... You know, throw stones in glass windows. I, I, it's just one of those things that make you go, hmm. What did you think, Nathan? Most windows are glass, Bill. But uh, <laughs> that, that part aside, um, glass houses, yeah, I get you. Glass houses, um, windows, whatever. Uh, <laughs> well, what is it they call what, what? What's the term in wrestling when you you choose to be the bad guy, the heel? Heel, heel. Yeah. I get to be the heel of this episode, I guess, um, depending, I guess, on, on on where you fall down on this. I've been watching and, and seeing everyone sort of weigh in on this on, on online, and you get both sides of the fence. Um, I am, I will say, state one thing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired, though, of, of when people love something, uh, everyone uh, coming down on those people who love it and say, you know, I can't believe you like this, or you guys are just accepting anything. But I, I also 
am not a fan of coming down on everyone who who dares to be even a little critical or even a little uh uh you know reflective on on some of these movies that they throw out there and the idea that oh you hated it or you didn't get it or what did you expect just go in to be entertained um uh, because I, you know, I saw this very early on Friday morning, about five a.m. Because I was up, and I thought, you know what, let's let's get it before I hear anything about this movie at all. I'm a big fan of the original. I um, not as not as much as you. It is not my favorite horror film, but it is a very good horror film. And I just want to ask a question right off the bat, though, Bill, is in yep. the original film, you know, did you care about the characters? I did, only because I found them more interesting. They were quirky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you, and were you into the story in the original? Yes. Yeah. I, I genuinely I genuinely wanted to know if Sally would survive, and I wanted to know what was in that house. And I think those are basic, the basic aims, or should be the basic aims of most films, you know, and particularly horror films, to, to have that goal. I guess the problem I have was sort of saying it had really great gore, which it absolutely does, but it almost pushed you in a position where you're reviewing the gore. You know, I've I, I've heard people mention the gore uh, repeatedly. Uh, they're not talking about the characters. They're not talking about uh, the plot or anything like that um, because those really are weak here, but they're weak to a point that feels haphazard. What I mean by that is there's a lot of great work done in this film on a lot of different fronts one of those being i think this kind of the two uh kind of mvps here i think end up being the cinematographer and the score and and uh con stetson who did the score for the film because i i think the score is great it's excellent it does everything it needs to do in the film it underscores all of the intended drama and when the action scenes pop in it gives them a sort of heft that i don't think they really earn on their own personally speaking and uh i thought it created a great ambiance for the movie that kind of gives you it's the closest thing to creating the bridge for me between the original film and this film uh what did you think about the score bill i thought the score was pretty good it was kind of creepy it kind of kept kept the movie chugging along and really the score is the kind of thing where if you don't notice it it's kind of doing its job because it's getting you from scene x to scene y which i thought was good it's really good early on as we are starting to set the mood and that coupled again with the cinematography ricardo uh, diaz does the, the director of photography on this film and i think he does a great job of even though the film looks slick, he does a good job of capturing that sort of uh, heated, uh, baked under the sun, uh, Texas flair that the original film had. You know, there's a certain desolation. There's a certain ominousness to those scenes of the storm clouds rolling in over these fields of desiccated sunflowers. I mean, I just thought lots of the imagery in the film was really effective. Uh, and he does a great job of shooting the action sequences later because they are action sequences. They aren't. They aren't really just uh, watching someone get get uh, mutilated. There's a few scenes of that. Well, there's a lot of scenes of that. But w- w- when it happens, a lot of times in, in classic chainsaw fashion, they're in the midst of these action scenes. And there's a sequence where you have the saw coming down, almost like this the shark fin and jaws, right? Sort of chasing someone through the house that I thought was pretty nifty. 
and I liked all of that stuff. And the gore, when it uh, it surprised me when it first popped up, because like, wow, that's intense. And as we all know, the original film has a has a certain um, notoriety for conveying a lot through your imagination without showing you very little actual gore, right? Like there's yeah. very little actual grew in the original film. The original uh, is known for letting your imagination do it, not necessarily showing. Yeah, they don't. They don't let. They don't give your imagination much work out here. <laughs> no, no, there's no illusions. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a, and there is a scene where he gets on a bus and he just sort of goes at it, and you're like, okay. And if you were this person who's been just wanting to see Leatherface go full tilt on a uh, what's the opposite of a fish in a barrel, uh, millennials on a bus, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's basically that kind of typifies what happens in this film. But every other area of the movie. I was let down by, I was not entertained by, and I found myself, like you said, I found myself a little restless through the movie uh, for a lot of different reasons, and yet this movie has the same runtime as the original film. I was never, I was never sort of looking at my watch, or I was on the edge of my seat for every minute of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think part of that is they they bothered to tell a story there uh, that's building mystery that wants to not tell you everything directly up front. This is easy setup. I mean, if you are going into this, I'll say this. I don't begrudge anyone. I wish I enjoyed it as, me, as much as many of the people online. If you are in this and you, what you want to see is a, is a basic straightforward slasher with a lot of, a lot of intense gore and some kind of, uh, you know, fast paced action sequences, then this movie will give that to you. It's very slick. It probably has something in common with the platinum dunes, uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003. Ultimately, I find even that a better film, though, and I'll tell you why. Something you mentioned a few minutes ago, Bill, you said uh, you didn't care about any of these characters. And I've heard people say, well, how can you not have sympathy for this? But, well, I think there's a difference between having sympathy for characters. I think it's easy to have a sympathy even for a character that's maybe not very well fleshed out. You can even, I don't even necessarily have to care about a character or want them to survive if I'm not supposed to. But I think the thing is, I was not invested or intrigued by any of these characters. That's a big difference than whether I liked them or didn't like them. Uh, I was—I didn't even have enough material to make one decision or the other, unless the movie really wanted to pound it home. You know, uh, Franklin, you're right. He's interesting in a, in an irritating way, right? He's yep. unique in an irritating way, and sure. any sense of quirkiness—that weird kind of. The idea that somewhere in the in the in the back channels of Texas these people exist, there's none of that. There's no interesting, weird, quirky characters. And every time you start to get a character that might show a little of that flair, uh, you kind of uh, it, it just goes out the it, it goes out the window. There's a guy named Richter, played by uh, Mo Dunford, that like he's you know he's working at the uh, the, the garage right across the way there, and he's got all his his uh, guns and everything outright. I mean, I don't know who who teaches uh, you know a, a school shooting victim how to <laughs> how to handle an assault rifle, but you know he's that kind of guy. But every time a character starts to show any sort of nuance, they sort of just tamp it down. Uh, I don't want to get into too many details here, but I say that one of the things that stands out for me in the original films is I don't view Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even it's a, it, it's a, it's few sequels afterwards as the Leatherface show, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was never to me singularly. All those images are very stark of Leatherface chasing people with a chainsaw. 
I mean, some of the most terrifying, weird, and darkly humorous stuff in Texas Chainsaw Massacre deals with the clan of people that Leatherface belongs to, right? The Sawyers. Like, that element, you know, you're not really getting that here. I feel that we're not dealing with Leatherface uh, that much as a character. What we're dealing with is someone took hastily sketched plans that were taking notes from Halloween 2018 and making it here. And so when you have Sally Hardesty's character show back up, I felt that was almost the worst part of the film for me because it feels like a, such a hastily and then half done riff on what was happening in Halloween 2018. And to the point, it doesn't quite make sense. We sort of, when we are reintroduced to her, she's doing something and living in a place that doesn't seem like something that a person who survived a chainsaw massacre would be doing. Uh, but even putting all that aside, I don't know, Bill. I just wasn't really – the movie never drew me in. I, I admired it from the perspective of the way a person may walk through a uh, a carnival funhouse or something. There were a few times when I was uh, engaged at a surface level for the, for the, the craft that was being put into those uh, technical scenes – but the writing is is not very good. And I think it's the writing that's the problem less than the acting. I think the acting isn't very good because those other pieces aren't very strong. I again, is it it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. I do wish that yes, the the, the original's a high bar, but I didn't need the original. I just wanted a movie that that walked in and wanted to tell its own story. What's the reason for being here? And I think for all the techn for all the effort that was put into this movie, just simply say, we just wanted to see gore and Leatherface kill people with a chainsaw. I mean, the people who enjoy this, that's that's great. I'm glad. But will any of us really be thinking about it in another month or two? You know, and I understand maybe that's not the goal, but if you're going to make us if you have the the money to make a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I would, uh, it has Texas, it has Chainsaw, it has Massacres. That's going to be enough for most people. Uh, it just wasn't quite for me, only because I I admire the original film and I wanted something that, that gave me a new story. I also, uh, the, the, the messages in the film are a little mixed for me. Uh, what it's trying to say about millennials seems to be all over the map. And then a lot of it, though, is so half-considered that it doesn't make an impression either way. I don't know about you, Nathan. There is a scene towards the end where Leatherface and one of the last survivors is in water. And uh, if you watch it once or twice, Leatherface jumps out like he's on a pogo stick. He just flies out of the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. It was a little ridiculous. And I, I, all these things are not really my complaints with the movie. I no, think that like no. those you expect in a kind of... Uh, and I've watched all the other Chainsaw movies. This is better than some of the sequels, but oh, much better. Uh, much but better. I will say, I miss that taking out some of those very kind of quirky, offbeat features are sort of what makes Texas Chainsaw unique and beloved. I have seen. I was a fan of Halloween Kills. I know a lot of people uh, didn't enjoy that film. I did. I, but I don't know that I want to see that template on this. This is a different franchise. These movies. Uh, yes, the 80s slashers, they didn't have great acting. They didn't have great FX, all-time or great storylines. But Texas Chainsaw and Halloween aren't really 80s slashers. You know, they are gritty 70s horror thrillers that beget 80s slashers. And I think people sometimes forget that. So 
when you're making Texas Chainsaw, even though all of its sequels were, were I guess, could fall under the, the, the umbrella of 80 slashers, this one isn't as much. And uh, there are things to like about it. I, I think that I would definitely, a horror fan will want to see the film. And a horror fan will probably enjoy the film to some degree. I enjoyed the film to some degree. Uh, I'm not quite as high as you, Bill. I'm going to give it a five and say that uh, it's not a recommendation, but if you're a horror fan, go see it because chances are, based on everything I'm observing, you're going to like it more than I did. I just wish that if they're going to get these properties, they're going to get these IPs, and now they're going to let people think about what could be for a few years, let's put at least as much effort as the fans are into making these things click. These story beats that we're talking about that don't make sense, some of these very brief uh, character observations about where a character could have been uh, changed in this way to, to make them more interesting, why these things aren't being considered by a writing team working on a, a, a movie that has millions of dollars poured into it is kind of baffling, honestly. Yeah, uh, you know what? I'm never going to stomp on somebody's parade if they think that they can improve or if they can add something fresh to it. And I encourage movie makers and directors and producers to continue with their craft. Just sometimes, as you said, when you have the money and the resources that Netflix allowed them, it's just interesting what the final product yeah, was. And, and let me ask you just kind of straightforward question, not, not to like throw you under the bus or in the bus with the chainsaw, but what, did, were you disappointed by it? Like ultimately, like enjoyment I, I was, aside. I, I was a little bit. Like six and a half is kind of a, a, a either a lukewarm go see it or a slightly disappointed. And, and I'm kind of, and I hate sitting on the fence. But I, I can go into it with a certain headspace and just enjoy it for the blood and guts and what have you. I just but don't know I, that we should because I feel like horror films can be more, you know, and not not even yeah. elevated. People say, well, it's not Shakespeare. No, it's not Shakespeare, but it's also not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, like, you know, for those people that say it's the worst movie they've ever seen. Oh, come on. Have you seen some of those Roger Corman films? You know, you, <laughs> you and I will talk about worst movies probably this episode. Yeah, like have you seen Manos, Hands of Fate, Creeping Terror, Feeders Two, uh, Santa Claus versus the yeah. Devil? Like you know, those are bad films. But I, but I think this we is, can leave. I can think we can both safely say there's room to do better, and you should. Yeah, oh, there you is. should do yes. better. I think with with this, yeah. you have a you have a fan base that's going to love most of what you do. I don't think that gives you the right to slack off. I think it that that requires you to try and find a way to kind of top their expectations. If you can, if you can't, they're going to forgive you. I mean, honestly, since number three, I don't expect anything out of any of them. <laughs> so, was that Leatherface? The, the... Uh, uh, well, no, Leatherface was one of number. Yeah, uh, I forget. Number three was the one with the, the shiny chainsaw. Was it? Yeah. The, 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 I remember the, the trailers for that had the lady in the lake. I kind of enjoyed that movie, though, more than this one, I think. Yeah, um, but but once you get to number four, you know Dave Dave Becker just loves that. Oh, I know. But a four at least has some eccentricities to it. At least it's got some uh, personality. Oh, McConaughey brings the personality. Is it personality? Good. I'll take the personality over the gore personally. But yeah. anyway, that's anyway. five for me, six point five for you, and we're both basically saying, look, it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're going to see it. It is a Texas Chainsaw in 3D, and that's a good thing. No. And uh, it's going to, if you want Leatherface, 
doing his thing, you're going to get it in a way that I don't think it's ever been quite put to the screen before. And those those parts are pretty are 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 uh, are, are going to probably give you what you're looking for. And now knowing that you probably no matter what podcast you listen to, somebody's going to give their two cents. There's yes. my there's my American nickel. <laughs> yeah, right there you go. <laughs> your uh, wheat penny. Uh, yeah, my my wooden <laughs> my wooden nickel or whatever it is. Yes, yes. Alrighty. So, what are you going to bring to the table next? Dan? Okay. Well, I think uh, in keeping with discussing new films that are out in theaters, I uh, want to talk about a, a, the other horror film that released this weekend. Great, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw was on Netflix, released on Netflix. I should mention that. So, if you haven't seen it and you want to see it, you can see it there. But the other movie released into theaters, uh, and it is not on streaming as of yet, but it's The Curse from 2021. Uh, and it's actually, it premiered at the 2021 Sundance Film Fa- Festival last year under the title Eight for Silver, which is where I saw it last year. And that was my first exposure to the movie. But it's uh, now going by the title Cursed. Here's the plot, basically. In the late 19th century, brutal land baron Seamus Laurent slaughters a Roma clan, unleashing a curse on his family and the village. In the days that follow, the townspeople are plagued by nightmares. Seamus' son Edward goes missing, and a boy is found murdered. The locals suspect a wild animal, but visiting pathologist John McBride warns of a more sinister presence lurking in the woods. And I don't really want to say too much more about the plot, because The Cursed is a film that takes a basic concept, and if you watch the trailers, you can get a an inkling of where the story is going, and it plays with genre conventions in such a way that you're never quite on firm footing with it. You may walk in expecting one thing, and the movie sort of keeps subverting those expectations, but it does so in interesting and very, uh, I thought, dramatically enticing way. So it's got a very gothic, foreboding sensibility to it. It is sort of playing in the world of shapeshifters and and werewolf legends but i will tell you that i haven't spoiled anything by saying that because this movie is so much more going on on its surface and it does something that another film i love that kind of plays with genre conventions and plays with the mythology of werewolves which is the brotherhood of the wolf the back from 2001 which is one of my favorite sort of like genre mashup kind of movies this movie is on on sort of the same level and it takes this very lush historical setting and creates this entire mythology and this world and characters and places them within the context of actual history in such a way that is very clever but it also doesn't draw too much attention to itself so this story is a full-blown horror story you have and it actually becomes a bit of a uh it's an infection story it's a plague story uh it could have been on could have been a virus on your last land of the creeps episode bill uh, in a certain sense but at the same time it deals with mythologies that we are very familiar with as uh horror moviegoers but then it plays with them in ways that take this storyline into a little bit of dark fantasy, maybe even some science fiction. You have some body horror in classic, almost Cronenberg fashion. Uh, fashion. There's something, uh, an autopsy sequence that's very cool that, you know, harkens back not just to the thing, but the autopsy scene and like the 82 cat people, things of that nature. And 
yet it just kind of keeps bringing in new little facets. And it is very, the cinematography by uh, Sean Ellis is very lush. He directed, he wrote it, and he's the cinematographer as well. And he really knows what he's looking for in the film. He creates a movie that's full of lush countryside. Uh, It's bloody and blood-soaked and uh, crimson-stained when it needs to be. You have these wonderful dark manor houses where the lights are all out except for candlelight and something maybe stalking in the shadows. I mean, if you're a fan of the Hammer Horror School here, uh, this movie's ambiance, its atmosphere, and the look of it are just going to thrill you. You're going to be so happy with it on that count alone. And yet I think that the story uh, is interesting and the, the, the supernatural presence at the heart of the story is interesting and intriguing and the drama that involves the roma people has a certain tragedy there is there's a tragic nature to this horror that i i I always sort of like those tragic horror stories they give you a certain bit of depth and nuance and uh emotion uh that can carry you through and that's in this film and i am i was quite impressed when i saw it it's kind of stuck with me i kept waiting all year for it to be released i will say if you're someone going in for a a uh, typical run-of-the-mill werewolf movie, that's not this. This is a bit of a creature feature, but it's going to do some things you may not see coming. Uh, Is it 100% focused? Uh, Ultimately, does it bring its story all the way full circle? I think it it gets maybe a little sloppy towards the end in terms of that I feel like the movie goes on for maybe just a little bit longer than it needs to, and there may be just one or two... Uh, many Russian nesting doll elements of the story here where you've got a piece within a piece. But overall, this is a very engrossing movie. I liked it even better the second time from the the, the viewing in Sundance. I think in Sundance I was more like a 7.5. I'm uh, solidly an 8 on this film at this current point. Uh, It's really good. I think it's going to be one of the better movies, one of the better horror movies that comes out this year. Awesome. So are you telling me the nineteen or sorry, the two thousand and five horror comedy with Christina Ricci and Jesse Eisenberg? I I watched that thinking it was the cursed. Is that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was that was cursed. This is the cursed. <laughs> cursed. I yeah, personally yeah. don't know. Um eight, eight for silver is a was a better title in my mind, or at least a little bit more evocative, but I think trying to sell eight for silver to a uh, you know, Saturday matinee audience who needs a reason to go out during a pandemic and see a horror movie about a pandemic. Maybe the cursed is <laughs> just generic time. enough that it'll it'll pop them into the well, seat. It, it sounds very interesting because it's not the same kind of movie, but kind of like uh, Alterados, uh, Terrified, in that it yeah. meshes together. You know, many different. And the one thing you didn't know, you didn't mention that I thought of right away, given the setting and the time period. Does it line in somewhere with uh, folk horror? It is definitely. It definitely has a very folk horror feel. Particularly, it, it the early chapters that deal with the Roma people, and there's a there's a there's a set of metal teeth that are constructed earlier on. That's very kind of interesting, and how that plays into the mythology. So yeah, it's definitely folk horror. I kind of think of that whole uh, genre that deals with things like Brotherhood of the Wolf and the Company of Wolves. And this film fits in very nicely with those movies. Uh, they would make a nice triple feature. I was going to say those, uh, those little red riding hood type films where, you know, you go off into the forest. But, but the warning here is this does kind of take it on its own identity. If you're someone who, who wants to see a 
uh, a monster film that that melds the supernatural with the mythology with the mythological and the scientific and the science aspect of creating a, a creature that might exist in 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 the in the real world context of this historical fiction i think you're gonna get that here and this is a movie where i think the story's stronger than the characters the characters are sort of occupied because it's so big and it's so sweeping and brotherhood of the wolf and company of the wolves to be honest were films like that as well these characters are sort of dwarfed by everything going on by the overall production of the film but that's okay here everything that's happening is is very interesting and it's creepy in places i, I think it really does work i think um I think this is one to look out for. So it's the cursed and it's playing at theaters right now. I would say definitely go to the theater and check it out. I was intrigued by the fact that IMDB lists the first category as fantasy. So I'm figuring it's more of, you know, there's elements of fairy tale-ish, you know, Hansel and Gretel. Well, the one thing I would say is it actually feels, it does. I think honestly, the sort of period set hammer horror films are a better, are a better, uh, like, place marker for that then because it doesn't you you kept you keep expecting it to sort of delve further into that fairy tale sort of feeling like like gretel and hansel you know uh and it kind of keeps pushing back from that a little bit because just as it starts to fall into the sort of magical realist world it'll bring you into these scenes of uh investigating the contagion or 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 these autopsy sequences and what's going on with this uh at a at an actual like the way it affects the humans in this village level. And so it kind of balances those things in such a way that keep it interesting. And they don't, it isn't just any sort of one thing. I, I keep expecting uh, science meets Captain Kronos vampire hunter. You're, you're on the right, you're on the right track. I think you bill who enjoys, who really enjoys those sorts of films. will get a lot out of this one. I think you'll really I, enjoy I re- it. I, I really look forward to it. The, the only other thing is when I look on IMDb, the picture and they obviously are showing the iron teeth. I thought, ooh, is there a vampire element to it here? I will leave, I'll leave because, this for you for for the audience to see because I think okay. what's when you go into this movie, think about that, but just don't think about any one mythology. I think as you start to think about what the movie is about and what it is trying to present, you can get hung up really easily on expecting this thing or that thing. And I yeah. think that's what's kind of cool is keep in mind that the movie is trying to introduce something a little different while playing that that greatest hits in your mind of what you expect from mythological creatures gotcha it's one i'm definitely gonna try to get a hold of now that apparently the theaters are opening up here i might be able to catch it before it dies all right so the other movie that i watched that's current uh in the horror slash fantasy community uh slash thriller is 2021's, but I think it's literally 2022, Slapface. Yeah. And and Slapface has been getting a lot of uh, publicity over the internet and the chat rooms and things. But you get that title and you don't know, what are you going to get here? I don't know. It makes know you laugh is, a little is, bit. <laughs> is this an S&M movie? Is this a college party prank movie? Is this a, uh, a some, and something's gone wrong and they've been slapping each other? I don't know. So I didn't know anything about it other than the title. Uh, The IMDb synopsis is a boy deals with the loss of his mother by creating a dangerous relationship with a monster rumored to live in the woods. It was directed by Jeremiah Kipp. It stars August Maturo, who was in The Nun. Mike Manning, who among his things were Days of Our Lives. Lieb Bearer, 
who was in I See You and the TV show DuckTales. See, there's our our uh, <laughs> link to the uh, illustrated fan. He, he was in DuckTales. DuckTales, there you go. <laughs> and uh, someone you will recognize definitely, Dan Hedaya, who was in The Usual Suspects, Mulholland uh, episodes in Law and & Order. But and that also, movie, Dick. <laughs> And well, I know him as Nick Cortelli in Cheers. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep, I mean, he was in. He was uh, he played Richard Nixon in that in the movie Dick from like '99, I think. Yeah, he's he's a, a a classic character actor that that has a distinctive face, and he didn't have a big role in this. He plays but not like a flat, but not a slap face. No, but not a slap face. More of a a weathered face. Yes, than a slap yeah, face. <laughs> the dragged okay. across concrete so, face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the man who's lived and yes, told there can goes. tell the story. That's it. So it opens with a man in his twenties slapping the face of a boy twelve or so. Okay, so they're just sitting in their kitchen slapping each other in the face, just wailing on each other. So you're not going what's what's going on here? And it's followed by credits of medieval slash early American devil pictures and newspaper clippings of accidents and ominous music. So you've got these weird images of things happening like witch trials and devils. You've got these newspaper clippings of things that have gone wrong of accidents. Where is this leading to? Okay. So we, we learned to find out that of the two people in the kitchen, one is an older brother who's raising the younger brother. A boy's mom has died and the older brother is now raising him. Lucas goes into local abandoned buildings as part of an initiation to join a group of girls in their gang. Lucas is kind of, I wouldn't say antisocial, but he doesn't have a lot of friends. And he has these girls, I guess they'd call them now mean girls, that follow him around and basically berate him and belittle him. And he kind of took the philosophy of, if you can't beat him, join him. So he wanted to be part of their group. So he goes into this, abandoned building and let's just say there are things in there that well i will not say a lot about because i kind of want you to watch uh there's a great really creepy atmosphere and it is slow paced you're kind of wondering where this is going he finds something in there that i will just call a spirit an animated spirit but there's also a bit of romance in this. And one of the mean girls actually isn't quite as mean as she lets on. And Lucas and her kind of have a bit of a thing for each other. So you kind of got the teenage uh, love angle into it a little bit. Now, I will call the spirit more of a witch. Let's just call her a witch. I think that's very and, fair. Yeah, he develops a relationship with the witch. You're not always sure. If not a for the... relationship. Oh no, not we're not talking. We're not talking a Dead Snow Two zombie sex relationship. <laughs> no. We're just talking a, a, a rapport, shall we say? Yes, yes. And and you're not quite sure if it's for the better or for the worse, but this relationship kind of buds, and it also focuses on the relationship between the older brother and the younger brother. Is the older brother doing, he's doing the right thing by raising the son or as his son, his brother, but is he raising him in the right way with the right moral values and how to resolve situations? So the uh, we're not sure if everything is good, depending upon the, the rapport with the witch, 
the rapport with the brother? Is it going to have an explosive ending? Is it going to have a supernatural element, which is definitely here? Is this a metaphor film? Uh, I'm sure it could be. I couldn't figure out what the metaphor is, but I'm sure somebody smarter than me will let me know if I missed it. But ultimately, I really didn't care about the characters. I, I really didn't. And that's not to say they weren't well acted, because I think the acting was more than competent. I just don't think they were written very well. So at the end of the day, I mean, there's a side story about the brother's girlfriend coming and going. It makes here nor there. Other than people start going missing. Animals and people in town start going missing. The local police constabulary are trying to investigate. And the witch relationship begins to unfold. I gave this a 6 out of 10. What do you think of this one, Nathan? Yeah, I, you know, it's it begins in a very interesting way. And I think that, as you sort of alluded to, it takes a, a, a kind of tack towards an, an anti-bullying story. You know, it deals, it's another story dealing with a bullied individual who was sort of pushed towards a relationship with something that's sort of dark and fearsome that he wouldn't normally come in contact with. But because he's sort of been pushed to the fringe, by these bullying forces around him, he's sort of placed in a in a scenario where he wouldn't normally be and in, in doing things that he wouldn't normally do. And so you, we see this a lot. I mean, we even go back to, you know, uh, Christine, you know, uh, the, the boy and his car and that and the kind of dark relationship that builds there. Again, be, n- not because he's naturally gravitating towards evil, but because he's sort of pushed towards evil. But this movie seems very muddled about what exactly kind of story it's trying to tell. Uh, it's kind of interesting to begin with, and I appreciate it. It has, Bill, will you think it would be fair to say this almost has a little bit more of a young adult feel to it as a horror film? Uh, yeah, young adult, like almost like a 13-year-old. Yeah, it's not particularly excessively violent, although it's more violent than, say, like a uh, something like an Are You Afraid of the Dark would be. But in some ways, I don't even think it's as well put together at a story level as an Are You Afraid of the Dark might be. You know, it... It jumps all over the place. It doesn't, its characters seem half finished in a lot of ways, or they don't seem consistent with where they would have been earlier in the story. And the witch character, I mean, honestly, Bill, like initially, as they begin to introduce it, I thought, hey, this is kind of interesting and sort of unique. But then, you know, when you have these sort of reveals of it, it's not really unique at all. And it's actually kind of laughable. You know, I think the creature is sort of one of the weakest elements of the movie. And the rest is everything we've seen before. And so there's not a lot of like vested interest. And I don't think many of the performers can really like bring the material up. And so you have this movie that kind of just kind of sits there. Uh, it's very intriguing initially because I always am interested in these stories that deal with this sort of this narrative that involves uh, the bullying. And then, and then what happens when someone is pushed to a point where they're now vulnerable enough that they will seek solace or seek escape or or salvation from any source. And we saw, uh, we've seen movies like that. We've reviewed movies like that over the past year or so uh, that were a lot more effective at it than this one was. I, to me, I ultimately just kind of sat there. It, wasn't, uh, it was hard for me to have any sort of uh, big feeling about it when it was over, you know? So, we, yeah, uh, not, I wasn't really big on this one. I give it about a five as well. And, and you know, I think that there are, Will it be interesting to some audiences? I think it will be, but it's a, at the end of the day, 
it didn't come together at all. And I, I was really kind of surprised by that because on the early going, I thought it had some potential. Yeah, the uh, witch at a certain point, I thought it reminded me of the uh, Grim Reaper in uh, Monty Python's. Yes. Uh, what was it? The Meaning of Life? Yeah. You, well, it's it's almost like every every depiction you've ever seen of a witch when you were like in, like in a, a, a kid's storybook, you just take the hat away, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have these creepy hands. Yeah, almost whatever. looks like one of like uh, you know, the old tales from the crypt comics. You you didn't have just have the tale the crypt keeper. You also had the you know the the vault of horror and then the haunt of fear and and it doesn't look that far from the witch that ran the haunt of fear. But I mean, I will say there was some a pretty decent production value. Yeah, uh, you know they didn't scrimp on. I mean, it was the cinematography was fine. The the score was fine. Like it wasn't a cheap film. I just think the writing was was yeah, it, what it, let it down. It's it's kind of like your what's what is frustrating about the film is that it ultimately doesn't get across the finish line because you it gathers its pieces and you think it's going to get there and it kind of like stumbles and falls in these various ways and at the end you're just not left at least I wasn't left with much of an impression at all, which is a shame because I think that this niche of of a good solid young adult horror film that doesn't pull its punches but also has something to say is there's a ripe field for that. I just don't know that this one's going to make much of an impression. If I had been a young person saw this, this wouldn't be a movie I would have necessarily remembered for years and years. No, this won't be making my top 10 list. Or anything. Yeah. What was your rating final rating on this one, Bill? Uh, mine was, I, I give it a generous six. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's fair. I, to me, it just didn't quite do enough to, to be like a recommend. I think this is, this is a stream it on shutter. If you're interested, but with so many other horror films out there, I think that you can um, you could do you could do a little bit better, uh, and they're they're certainly out there. All right. So, what did you want to bring up next, Mister Barbara? Okay. So we're gonna jump over to back over to Netflix and talk about another movie that they Netflix is. I will give Netflix credit now that they've reached a point when they've got a decent number of releases almost every other week. You know. And uh, it's interesting to see what their their content and everything they've been putting out there. And uh, getting some pretty high-profile films, too, because as we talked about, we've talked about Texas Chainsaw, and there's been other big movies of late. The one I want to talk about kind of flew on the radar. I didn't even realize it had released, uh, that it was out there. I saw the title, and then my initial thought was, oh, here's a fun movie I can watch with my kids, based on the very colorful picture and the little, cute little robots that were on the cover of the image. And then when I clicked on it, I realized that, that it was essentially a... Uh, a French sci-fi sex farce and <laughs> thought, okay, maybe, maybe not for my kids. Also directed by Jean-Pierre Jeunette, who did, uh, is probably most, most well-known uh, here in the States for Amelie, but you know, for genre fans is probably well-known too for Delicatessen and City of Lost Children. He also directed Alien Resurrection and A Very Long Engagement and other films like that. Uh, he has a very, if you've seen any of his films, you know that he is a very unique and very whimsical uh, sensibility both in his humor and in his visual stylings his movies have a almost steampunk gothic look to them a lot of times but big bugs a little bit different it takes place in a world that looks for all the, you know uh, to my eyes like the world of the jetsons basically and it's like what if the world of the jetsons went terribly ter terribly wrong trapped a bunch of horny people in a house together 
So the basic uh, synopsis is as follows. A group of bickering suburbanites find themselves stuck together when an android uprising causes their well-intentioned household robots to lock them in for their own safety. And uh, the stars here are Isabel Nanti, Elsa Zieberstein, Claude Perron. Uh, there is a whole sort of cast of characters here that end up in the same house at the same time for various reasons. And you've got a situation where two of these people are a husband and wife who are now uh, estranged, separated from one another. The wife is having a a possible romantic interest over to her house with his young son at the same time that her ex shows up for something with his current uh, lover. And they are all in the house together. A, a neighbor ends up over there as well. And their daughter is there. And so very soon they're all trapped in this house because when the AI, the artificial intelligence uprising occurs, the robots controlling the house shut everything down. And so everything is locked down and they can't get outside. But this world, right from the very get-go, is seen as a very quirky, Terry Gilliam, absurdist universe. Again, there are flying cars. There are candy-coated pastel colorings. You, you thought It makes the world of the fifth element look realistic by comparison almost. Uh, the little robots look like they are literally been popped right out of the Jetsons or something similar. Uh, the very cute little robots, but the things that they say and do aren't necessarily cute. Uh, the film definitely has an adult vibe. It's not ex uh, excessively explicit, but it isn't the kids' film that you, just by a quick glance at the cover, you may think it is. The robots are have sinister intentions. Uh, you can kind of tell this right from the get-go when you realize that the TV show that is playing uh, in the background initially is a show where it's a game show a reality TV show where humans subject themselves to being the pets for these, these uh, robots that walk them around on leashes and subject them to as much humiliation as possible to see if they can, if they can make it through to the end. And that, that sort of sets the tone for this movie. And it does become a movie where so-and-so wants to sleep with this person, but in their heart, they're really yearning for that person. And the movie plays with some of that. At the same time, the robots in the house are trying to figure out where their allegiances lie. Do they really want to be human? What do they do with these humans? Do they want to be part of the AI uprising? What, where do their, where's their allegiance at? And the movie has a lot of fun with that. I think that it has a lot of cute sight gags. It gets uh, some interesting jokes in about, what about our level of comfort in our world where we surround ourselves and bury our heads in the sand to the point that we have made ourselves helpless? I think that's the most interesting theme here is that these people have put themselves at the mercy of larger forces by their excessive desire for comfort. And now they're as upset about the situation they find themselves in as the fact that they let it happen to themselves. And the movie plays with that a lot, not just the not just the fact that these humans are at the mercy of the robots, but also that they are at the mercy of their own emotions and passions, and they don't quite know what to do with them. Uh, it's your base. At some level, it does feel a little juvenile. It does feel a little silly. The special effects and the creatures and the uh, the world that's there and some of the sight gags involving the dog, that is, the neighbor's dog has been cloned seven times. But this uh, at one point, one of the flying cars is heading towards the house, but the dog keeps jumping in front of it. And because these vehicles have to shut down when a living thing is in their way, you, you have some hijinks and sue here. It's very much a comic strip sort of filmmaking that Unet has done in some of his other movies. I think it's just a little light 
uh, even lighter than some of his other stuff in some ways. There's definitely a darkness underneath, but it's totally fun for the duration that I, uh, I watched it. I was consistently engaged in it. I liked what was happening. But at the at the same time, it's almost just a little too cotton candy. You know, there's a sense where I wanted a little bit more interaction with those human beings in the house and the robots. The robots are more interesting than the people, and we don't quite get them to the level that we would want. They stay at the sort of kind of uh, cutesy overseers, uh, and then you have the more aggressive ones that almost look like Peter Weller with his mask off from RoboCop. But I enjoyed it, I, as I enjoy most of his movies. Uh, movies like Amelie, City of Lost Children, and Delicatessen are all on another level. You can see this one drawing from that. This is definitely a tear down. I give it a 6.5. I say it's definitely worth seeing if you're into very visual, uh, quirky movies. If you enjoy uh, French comedies, you'll probably find something to like here. Just understand it's not the top tier of his work. I'd be interested to see it again. It may grow on me. It just it definitely feels like a lesser film, but I can't deny that I really enjoyed watching it. Sounds really interesting. I haven't seen it. I will get to it on Netflix, but it taps into a genre that I find isn't used much. The comedy slash sci-fi. I can't think of too many of those. Yeah, and it definitely puts the comedy kind of at the forefront here. Uh, I the one the issue, the reason it's a six point five and not say a seven point five is that it's a bit long. It's an hour and fifty one minutes, and it really doesn't quite, I think, have enough material to completely sustain that. But it's charming enough that it kind of gets you through. I don't know if you've seen any of his other movies, Bill, but uh, he has a lot of sort of uh, charming qualities. I think in the way he puts his films together that that sort of keep them running even when maybe something intrinsically interesting isn't happening in the script yeah it is one that uh, i will definitely get a hold of and it is a 2022 yeah it's on netflix right now came out okay uh, just a few all right weeks ago. I'm, I'm just saying i'm always looking for decent watches for my non-horror list so i'll make sure i get a hold of that one all righty so my next one is a 2021 film that i kind of wish i had snuck on before i did my other list but if you remember my non-horror 2021 list, I went over a film called 14 Peaks. Nothing is impossible. And my wife really enjoys those documentaries of people overcoming the odds, uh, people doing extraordinary things and documenting them. And I have to admit, I enjoy them as well, but they're not my go-to. But again, we were sitting in, on the couch, you know, I had to find a movie to watch. And I watched one called from 2021 called The Alpinist or The Alpinist, depending upon your pronunciation. And I won't take a lot of time on this one. It's a uh, write-up. Is it, it's a documentary. Marc-Andre Leclerc climbs alone, far from the limelight. The free-spirited 23-year-old makes some of his boldest solo ascents in history. With no cameras and no margin for error, Leclerc's approach is the essence of solo adventure. It's about this young man, Marc-Andre Leclerc, a young Canadian climber who lives at the age of 23 in Squamish, British Columbia. Squamish, British Columbia is right on the Rockies, and it's ripe for people that love the mountain climb, free climb. He likes to climb without a rope and without a net. He is the, the epitome of a free spirit that's a free climber. You get to know the guy. He has his eccentricities. They do not get into his entire background, but it's obvious 
that he has some ADHD, he has some Asperger's, he has some of those, but it's not that he isn't intelligent. He is his own free spirit. He's very methodical in the decisions he makes and he knows what he excels in and he knows what he doesn't. He also doesn't get caught in the trappings of keeping up with the Joneses and needing to look good for everyone else other than himself. He has no cell phone. At one point he has a cell phone and he, as he explains, he left it in a kit bag. He went over to relax and a wolf took it and a, a pack of salmon. Yeah. And he never bothered replacing the cell phone. So he's, but it's directed by Peter Mortimer and Nick Rosen, who, if you look them up, they've done a, a multitude of climbing adventures. So how did they find this guy? Because he's not like entering competitions or anything like that. He's not a big social media guy, obviously, but he had heard on a message board about this young Canadian kid climbing the sides of mountains uh, solo. And so he went to, uh, to investigate. He sent his camera crew out there. They made arrangements. And Leclerc does not have a house. He has a girlfriend, a good-looking, intelligent, reasonable girlfriend. And they live in a tent off the Rocky Mountains in Squamish, B.C. I don't know how he uh, is able to have money because they don't really reference him having any um, job. Perhaps he gets sponsorships from time to time, and that's how he does it. But he's climbing, free climbing all of these Rocky Mountains in record time. And he's doing it, and the locals that were there are like, who is this kid? Because he's not one to show off. He would just be happy doing it by himself, having no media attention. And he starts climbing freehand these mountains at that most people couldn't do, period. And he's doing them in the fastest times that people know of. And again, he's just doing it for the adventure and because he loves it. He's not out there to make money, to make National Geographic or the Guinness Book of World Records. He's just doing it because from a young age, he knew that was his thing. He was a climber. So once he hit like 13, 14, there's video of him climbing in the garage. And then he took the climbing courses and you get all the equipment. And he was in Quebec and he obviously went out to BC because that's where the mountains are. You know, it's just an amazing amount of cinematography for these films. The, you, he goes up these and the, the camera follows him up there. It's great following his relationship with his girlfriend, Brett. And Brett, you know, as I said, smart, intelligent woman. And she admits that she gets scared watching him go up because with his lack of any safety net and his lack of using a cell phone or of any kind, you don't know if and when he's coming down. He, at one point, climbs the face of one of the Rocky Mountains as fast as anybody has. And the film documenter Mortimer was going to, you know, finish off the film. But at a certain point, they don't hear from him. And where is he? He's gone to Patagonia to free climb one of the tallest mountains there. <laughs> and so... So they bring this camera crew out there and he gets in with the locals, you know, he chews the fat. He always manages to find a couch to sleep on. Someone throws him some meals and he climbs And The first time he does it, he fails. And the second time he gets up, 
And you got this sense of determination. The kid isn't doing it to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not going out there to be Mr. Buff, Mr. I'm going to climb to the top. I'm going to pound my chest. No, he's doing it because the mountain's there. And he doesn't give a hoot about not having the safety. I'm going to leave it at that because I want you to see how the movie plays out. It's his journey. And you're wondering how long he can do it. Is there any mountain that he can't reach? Does he have goals? Because as a 23-year-old free spirit, there's certainly no career path in what he's doing. So you want to see where it goes. He's an engaging guy, but at the same time, he's an introvert. He just wants to do his thing and not bother with anybody. I will say at the end, it's uplifting. That's what I will say. So I would say definitely watch it. I give this a seven and a half out of 10. The Alpinist is currently on Netflix. Check it out. You could do a lot worse with, let me just see, is it like an hour and a half? Uh, an hour 32. It, it's it's brevity is to the point. So I don't know. Have you seen this one, Nathan? I have. I think you summed it up nicely, Bill. I won't say too much because, again, I think you kind of covered it there. Uh, it's a very it's a very good movie. And uh, everything you said is true, including, of course, that the cinematography in these films and the way that this is captured is uh, thrilling. And it, you know, always, particularly we've had a, sp a spat of these movies in recent years. A couple of years ago, we had Free Solo, which uh, also captures this uh free climbing in such a way that really makes it intense and invigorating and uh the difference here is you're right that the main character in this film isn't that interested in being in the, in the documentary you know ultimately he is he's almost too much of a free spirit to be a uh to be able to be kind of coaxed into a place where they can really capture him climbing and observe him you know he's doing his own thing like you say at one point he's gone to free climb somewhere else sort of right in the middle of the in the middle of the film but i think you're right he's he is a likable type you can kind of appreciate admire him a little bit uh to a lesser degree he has that same sort of spirit that you would see in somebody like christopher mccandless that was uh, from into the wild you know unfortunately situations like mccandless and, and stories like grizzly man those those stories sort of end tragically he's not quite at that level you know of um of a centric but uh, Peter Mortimer, one of the directors here, also directed The Dawn Wall for 2017, which is another really good climbing film that has the great sort of, um, you know, vertigo-inducing angles and shots and uh, really kind of gets into the headspace of these people. Uh, that's not as prevalent here because you, the character is an introvert, but you're right that uh, to the degree that they can, they still capture his life and the captor's journey in a way that's enticing, that's interesting, it's intriguing. Uh, it's a very good film. I give it an 8 out of 10. And if you liked the 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible, it got a 7.8 on IMDb. This one gets an 8. Yeah, I, so... I, I like this one a little bit better, honestly, I think. Um, the the Alpinist. One of the, I think what I like better about it is the cap is capturing the essence of the climbing itself uh some of the some of the character dynamics in the other film uh i will say though you know this guy the, the character in the alpinist is a little more likable than the character in say a movie like free solo that is able to hone in uh because this guy is a bit of a you know he's sort of full of himself and he wants to be you know captured and filmed and all these things and so he allows himself to be sort of honed in by the documentary crew a little bit more. And the, this group is sort of just following this guy around as he's like, squirrel, 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 you know? 
Yeah, there's one scene where the film crew wants to document him climbing, I don't know, one of the Rocky Mountain faces yeah. or something. I can't remember what it is. And he actually went out and did it himself first, didn't get it documented because he wanted to do it freestyle with no encumbrances. And then he let the film crew call, <laughs> follow yes, him up there. Yeah, so. yeah. So it's got, it's a, but it's a good film. And I think that some of that, some of that quirkiness and the by the seat of your pants element of the character seep into the movie because it happens that way, because the crew is sort of always kind of trying to figure out what he's doing next uh, in such a way that it, some of his messy spirit gets into the movie, infects the movie in a positive way. It makes it an interesting sort of, uh, it gives the movie some character. All right. So if you like your adventure, you like your, uh, climbing and you're not afraid of looking down once you're at the top of the peak. Give this one a shot. All right. So the next film we're going to do is one that I came across and Nathan had mentioned earlier, but to be honest, I'd forgotten he had mentioned it. So I, it was kind of like new to me. And that is 2022's Kimmy. Now, Kimmy is a sci-fi thriller kind of got a feel of a bit of a late nineties thriller with an updated premise. It is an hour and 29 minutes. So it's not going to tax your time. The synopsis on IMDb is the very brief and agoraphobic Seattle tech worker uncovers evidence of a crime. I mean, that could go anywhere. Who the hell knows what that is. That, is that it? That's it's, all. <laughs> that's it. That's it here. You don't, you don't get any character or nothing. You just, she somebody uncovers something about a crime. I got a slightly better one for you. Sli slightly. Okay. Do you have a slightly better? Okay. What do you have, Nathan? Uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic in Seattle, an agoraphobic tech worker discovers evidence of a violent crime or reviewing a data stream. Uh, to get involved, she realizes she must face her greatest fear by venturing out of her apartment and into the city streets. I've edited that a little because there are a couple things I thought might be closer to spoilers. But that, I think that gives you a better idea of of the overall crux of the film. <laughs> and, and well, and the thing is, anybody listening who cares about the posters, the poster just shows the picture of a young woman with bluish hair of dark skin, kind of just looking out. So the poster doesn't give anything away either. It was uh, obviously on HBO Max. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have HBO Max, you can check it out there. So it's kind of a vague title a vague poster a vague description so what the heck is this all about directed by steven soderbergh who you might know he's been in the industry many years uh for such films as contagion he did unsane he did oceans 11 and he's done a whole whack load of those uh india de beaufort who was in uh, ncis los angeles and the tv show veep uh derek delgadio who was on the TV show Vegas. Sarai Koo, who was in The Fast and the Furious. And the lead actress is Zoe Kravitz, son and a daughter of uh, Lenny Kravitz and Lisa Bonet, who you might remember from Mad Max Fury Road and Divergent. And she's up and not up and coming. She's been around for a while and I know that she has bigger projects. I just saw her in something. I can't She's Catwoman in the Batman. Catwoman. That's, that's going to be pretty big. I saw, I saw that's going to be pretty big. So like you're, you're getting decent actors out of this. So what happens is Kimmy itself, it's a bit deceptive. You look at the title and you think Kimmy and you think it might be Zoe Kravitz. 
Kimmy is actually an electronic answering device, similar to Alexa or Siri. You know, Siri, can you tell me how to get to the closest Chinese restaurant? And it'll tell you. Except that Zoe, since the pandemic began and the lockdown and the clampdown and all this, all that, she's become agoraphobic. Now, we don't know. Maybe she was before, but we know that she had a working job. But now that she's been in her apartment, she's deathly afraid of leaving. Yeah. So there's an event that seems to have uh, prompted it that happened much earlier, but it is mentioned a couple times throughout the film that she's only sort of, uh, that the pandemic has only complicated and kind of caused her to spiral out. Like she might've been on a bit of a rebound with it. Again, it is the result of something very specific that happened to her, which is alluded to, uh, and, and covered a little bit later on in the film, but, uh, it was happening before the pandemic, but you're right. Like they, they make the point that the pandemic has only sort of exasperated what was already going on with her. Yeah, it's it, it does get into it a bit afterwards. But the big question as the movie involves, uh, evolves is, will she actually make it out of her apartment? Uh, she also has a weird relationship with a guy across uh, the street in an apartment where they're kind of flirting and almost kind of dating one another. They're texting each other. They're calling each other. But she's afraid to actually leave the apartment to go meet him for an ice cream cone or food a fruit vendor. So Kravitz is a voice stream interpreter for the company that makes Kimmy. So she gets all the audio tape of people calling in for various suggestions or information. But she hears what she thinks is a sexual assault or at the very least, a violent crime upon a person. And she seems to think that it needs to be reported, but she's facing some resistance among those who work in the company. And so she, through information provided by another worker who, I don't know, was he Ukrainian? Was he Russian? He liked his drink. There's no doubt about that. And he provides her with a phone number to call like the regional president or what have you. And a meeting is set up to discuss what was on the tape. And a chase involves the, a chase of information and a physical chase involving people higher up in the company and what it all leads to. I'm purposely being vague I'm purposely not saying everything because we want, we don't know, does she make it to the meeting? Who are these people that want things suppressed? Is she going to make it out alive? Are people going to come to her apartment to get her? But you do kind of get a rear window. I, I equated it to, if you blend her up, rear window, sex lies and videotapes and copycat. And you kind of blend them together with a little bit of Liam Neeson suspense thrown in there, you kind of got Kimmy. And so, again, is Kravitz going to overcome her fears to help solve the crime? You get a 90s thriller. I almost got the feel of a John Grisham cat and mouse kind of movie. Uh, I felt like I was uh, watching, you know, all those ones in the late 90s. The client and the, you know, the yeah. firm. <laughs> The Firm. Yeah, I, I thought of The Firm a lot. With uh, That's the one with um, Wilford Brimley. Uh, that yes, uh, Those kind yeah. of films is what it... Now, it also has, I found, a really good musical score, especially towards the end of the film. A lot of ambient sounds, a lot of those thriller-type 
um, piano, electronic type uh, sounds that add to it. And I will say that this was kind of chugging along for me. And then the last 20 minutes, I thought really bumped it up for me. So I gave it a six and a half out of 10, but I can easily see people giving it a much higher score depending upon if, if it's your jam or not. Uh, Nathan, I know that you enjoyed it more than I did. Why don't you give your take on the film? Yeah, you, you can easily see because I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, everything you said is it's technically correct about regarding where the movie pulls its um, homages. And uh, there are there are direct homages. And then there is Soderbergh kind of taking the styles of those films you mentioned and then mashing them up and creating sort of a... Uh, an amalgamation out of them that operates in a slightly different way. I will say this would have fit right at home with that cyber thriller run that we had in the nineties, particularly in like 1995, where we had hackers, the net uh, strange days and like virtuosity all showed up to tell us about the terrors of the internet. You know, I guess uh, uh, what was the one with Robert Redford and Cindy Poitier? It was a sneakers. That was sneakers a few years earlier, but yeah, sneakers. that I can yeah. see those same sort of vibes. I think ultimately this film, uh, where it fits in, it does feel a little closer to some of Soderbergh's more recent thrillers that he's made in that very tight kind of compact way where he's using, uh, th this one looks a little bit more slick than say Unsane, where he's specifically seeing what he can do with a limited amount of technology. Yeah, Unsane is a, a decent reference point if you were thinking about uh, what, what kind of feel he sort of uses making Kimmy. Because in Unsane, you had a... Un a potentially unreliable narrator, a woman that was going through a lot of things. And yet, even though there were all of these things sort of stacked against her, there still did not alleviate the possibility that she was being stalked. And uh, did you get to see Unsane, Bill? Yes, I've seen Unsane a few times. Yeah. And I will say that it's got, it pulls a little bit more from that than say Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, this is a thriller. This is, and I, I don't believe it's a horror thriller. It's a, intense nope. thriller it is definitely i would say in that 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 vein of techno thriller uh it isn't sci-fi because essentially the only the only element that is a the technological element is the kimmy device and the kind of gist is oh there are certain times when the kimmy will be recording you which creates this sort of paranoia sensibility well uh, this is a movie we actually uh, because for the most part there were a couple scenes i kind of skipped through but for the most part it's an intense taut thriller, but it isn't overly violent. It isn't excessively intense or scary. And we ended up watching with the kids and the kids were freaked out to say anything to Alexa for like a day after, after this <laughs> film because of the recording feature. But this isn't a movie that sort of heads in a direction of Kimmy's going to take over or, you know, there's no, there, the, the only technological element is that. And otherwise it plays in a rear window sort of vibe. Uh, what I think is true about the film is even though it is familiar. I don't think it's necessarily 100% predictable, at least for me as I was watching it. After a scene played out, I might have thought, oh, I could have seen that coming. But I think Soderbergh he paces it in such a way, and he pays attention to enough of the details of Kravitz's life uh, playing Angela as this character who is completely uh, subsumed in her apartment. The way they kept capture agoraphobia here is really interesting because they think of all the details. They think of all the things that she would have to do and the routine and the rituals she would have to go through in order to prepare herself to even get out the door. And then how quickly that ritual can be scuttled so that when she wants to meet the guy at the food truck, that that's a huge thing. So it's going to take something massive to get her to move out of the apartment. So to create her world 
And then Soderbergh layers in this other world that's going on involving the kind of corporate intrigue and what's going on in this company and the uh, the upcoming release of this Kimmy device juxtaposed against this secret that she finds. He's juggling a lot of balls, and I think he just does that really well. He's He's got a sense of filmmaking that allows you to get into that character's head because when she finally gets outside at certain points, the way he shoots it and the way he creates the claustrophobia and the sense of her trying to just make it around the corner of a building is really good. But while we are in her sense of turmoil, we also know there's somebody coming behind her. So I think the way those suspense sequences work are really, really like good and they become so um, involving that I was right there with it, even though the story isn't anything new. I think this is the difference. I was engrossed in the movie in the moment. When the movie ended, I thought, oh, you know, I have seen that before, but maybe not necessarily done exactly like this. The other big uh, thing I want to give credit to here is Kravitz's performance. I think she's really good in this. Uh, she exudes a vulnerability, but she also exudes a sort of strength overcoming that vulnerability that makes makes her character both strong and interesting to follow, but we also understand that she has enough uh, cards stacked against her that she may not make it through this, and we aren't always certain that she will make it through this. So I think all of those elements really work. And the rear window element, where she can see across the street and see the people looking back at her, and there are various people there, and in including, it's funny that we have a like a kind of cameo from Devin Rattray, who I haven't seen in a long time, who uh, who played last time. I can really remember him. He was playing uh, Kevin's, uh, uh, it was his brother Buzz in Home Alone, the kid, <laughs> the red-haired kid. Yeah, I was just looking up Home Alone. I couldn't remember which character he was. But, ironically enough, his, at the end, he tells her, my name is Kevin. So... <laughs> Oh, yeah, and 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 I and I don't know if that's a subtle tip to the fact that some of this movie, I, I don't want to give anything away, but some of this movie towards the end de develops a sort of dark Home Alone feel. I think that might be fair to say. The other thing that uh, Kevin Rat or sorry Devin Rattray was in that I didn't realize was he was a voice in The Tick. Yes, I yep. watching. I do. I really you, enjoyed you that. Tim Foyle, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin again. So, but the movie is fun. It brings in these other characters. You mentioned that relationship she has with the guy across the way. When she goes into work and she finally tries to tell everyone and and convey what's going on, there's a sequence where Rita Wilson comes into the film, and that sequence is really sort of excruciating to watch for a totally different reason than like personal safety or anything like that. So, I think the movie really works. I think it's timely enough, but. It, it just works as a thriller. Uh, the stuff that Soderbergh is trying to say about our current uh, technological lives, he's not a Luddite, obviously, but he's trying to, kind of, I think in some ways, it captures elements of what we have felt during this pandemic as well as any other movies I've seen recently. There was a movie I saw last year, Sundance. It's actually, I believe it's on Shutter right now, called Knocking, which is, those, these two films are very similar. In that film, you've got a woman who is st stuck in her apartment and can hear a knocking sound, and she she eventually hears what sounds like Morse code, and someone is kind of calling out in distress for her help. These movies would make really great sort of counterpoints to one another, and I uh, I recommend both of them. But I think Kimmy, what Soderbergh is doing here, it's just a little bit of a more of a mainstream thriller, and I think that anyone who's into that kind of thing uh, will will really enjoy it. Yeah, it's um, 
I will give it this. It You do get the feeling because of obviously what we've been through for the last 18 months, two years, it does capture that agoraphobic feel. Yeah. You know, you, you kind of get in her head and when it's kind of revealed later on why it is what it is, you, you understand why she feels compelled to stay in the apartment. And there are a couple of times where she attempts to get out and she's simply paralyzed by the fear. Yeah. And I think she's a great character and I was interested in her and what she was doing. So the rest of the movie was just sort of a construct to watch me see how she was going to handle the next thing. Yeah, there was, there was also an element of all the president's men. Oh, yeah, a lot for of sure. Stuff yeah. Mm-hmm. Going on behind closed doors of those on high, trying to send out to his lackeys things to do. So there was there was that element too. That, and that's why it got into the client and the firm and all that kind of stuff. Because again, it's the same kind of same kind of vibe. But I mean, you could do a lot worse than watch Kimmy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You can watch some of the other movies we've talked about tonight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but 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 honestly, you know, we've talk, we talk a lot about when we see a movie that we don't think is well-written. I think this was a well-written movie uh, in terms of the dialogue, the interactions, and again, how the, how the story is structured and what's going on underneath. It seems simple to do a thriller like this, but I think it is uh, harder than it appears many times to to really make something that has tension, that has uh, drama that works well together. And this does. I mean, is it a perfect movie? It's not. But I was into it while I was watching it uh, completely. If, if you are someone who misses the day when you went to the theater and there was single white female, there's hands that rock the cradle. The Ashley the Judd firm. era of thrillers. <laughs> yeah, yeah all, all of that. This is right up your jam, right up your alley. And... But I do think, I agree with Nathan, I think that Zoe Kravitz was very believable in this role. My downfall to this role is it did get a bit generic to me. And that's, again, living in my early 20s in the mid-90s, that's the feel of what I saw for seven or eight years in a row. So this kind of, in in a way, it was kind of made me feel good. I was like in my mid to late 20s, but at the same time, I've kind of seen this story play out before. We have. I don't know that we've seen it done with with with. Uh, we don't always see it done with this level of style. We have seen it done with this level of style before, but I don't think often enough. Um, I give this one a seven point five. Solid. That's good. And as I said, I gave it a six five, but definitely like I heard it described as sci fi. No, it is not sci fi. Other other than there, the technology is Kim. It's sci fi if you were to have seen it in nineteen ninety five. Oh, maybe, <laughs> maybe but, perhaps, but since it was you know. made this year, nope. <laughs> All righty. So Nathan, is there something you'd like to bring to the table? Sure. Yeah. Um, we'll continue with the new films cause I've seen quite a, a few of them lately. Um, and we, we I have a, a big one that I just saw, uh, today that I'll bring up in a minute, but I want to talk about a film that's on shutter right now called all the moons. It's a 2020 film. Uh, but it just dropped on the streaming service uh, last week, I think, uh, directed by Igor Ligaretta. And I'm going to read, this is a synopsis that comes off of Letterboxd. It's a little bit more detailed. It's far more detailed than what we get off of IMDb. I think it gives a good flavor for the movie. Uh, it's the last third of the 19th century, and in some valley in the north of Novara, the death throes of the last Carlist War 
are experienced. A projectile destroys a girl's hospice and only one girl survives. Badly injured, she is rescued by a beautiful woman who cares for her until she is cured. However, fate is not on her side and as a result of an unexpected attack on her hiding place, the girl is left alone and isolated in the mountains. It will be then that she will discover her new and strange condition, which will prevent her from seeing the light of day and from having an ordinary life like any other girl. The interest that is much. I was going to say that is much more detailed than the IMDb. Synopsis. It's much more detailed, and it actually very cleverly disguises something happening in this movie that I'm actually okay talking about because I don't. I think it it actually. Uh, plays into what's successful about the film. It's hard to talk about some of this element without talking about why the movie works, but that synopsis is good. So if you really, I will give a couple more details. And if you don't really want to know anything about this film, then uh, in terms of the plot beyond what I just read, then I will discuss it in such a way that you can. And then I will give a slight bit more, probably still without spoiling everything but i'll give you a little bit more of the flavor of what's going on uh, the one thing i'll say about this it's on shutter but i think it's pretty clear that even though you could call this i think there are movies uh you and i've discussed this many times when a film can be considered a horror film in theme but maybe not in execution which is to say when horror movies deal with certain topics and certain elements they are considered a horror film right you know even though they may not be scary or they may not feature all of the gore or the monsters of things we expect to see uh this is a spanish film it's more fantasy dark fantasy than horror for sure it's more drama than it is dark fantasy for sure now nathan is this a subtitled film? it is subtitled uh it is subtitled okay. it's a foreign picture i will say this that there uh this is definitely a slow burn too this is a very um atmospheric kind of esoteric film this feels to me for all the world like terrence malick who directed days of heaven and the tree of life and the thin red line if you took terrence malick and sort of mixed him together with guillermo del toro and his uh when he's working in his sort of spanish period picture phase like pan's labyrinth and the devil's backbone if you took those two sensibilities and intertwine them together the love of of universal horror and then the love for naturalistic poetic uh, imageries and thoughts and leaving a lot of space for uh, slow takes and seeing characters interactions with nature and things like that if I bored you already and if you're rolling your eyes then the movie's not for you but it may be for for you or for anyone who wants to see a different take on a certain kind of story this has some very fairy tale sort of elements to it as the synopsis mentions it does start to take place at the very beginning in an orphanage that is immediately bombed and you see the rubble falling around the wreckage and there's one little girl who is instantly trapped and near death uh underneath a bunch of debris that's fallen and then she is discovered by this woman who brings her out of the rubble and she's prior to her being saved she's looking at a picture of an angel sort of reaching its hand out towards a child and so in her mind she has taken the concept that this is sort of her guardian angel this person is going to care for her now that character takes care of her for a while brings her into another society she's still not entirely certain what's going on but it becomes clear that she has been chosen for a certain kind of lifestyle whether she wants it or not and that lifestyle is going to forever separate her 
from being like anybody else, including the people that she meets once she is separated from this mother figure. When she's separated by the mother figure, she ends up with another uh, another caretaker in the form of a man who's lost his daughter and is sort of taking this child in to sort of kind of replace the one that he lost in a sense, emotionally anyway, that seems to be kind of what he's doing. And while that's going on, you have how they interact in the society around them. Again, this is a period piece. So you see a lot of interaction, uh, much like Del Toro films with, uh, again, set against the backdrop of the war about what's going on with the, the clergy and, and the church at the time and how that, that interaction occurs with, with, uh, the villagers and things like that. You see the difference, the haves and the have nots and all of that elements of history are played against this backdrop of a story involving this young girl who's growing up to be a woman. And at some point, this mother figure is going to reappear into her life. Now I've said all of that and I give the film a strong recommendation, a very strong high recommendation uh, for a drama that kind of peels things back and gives you time to, to look and think about the concept of what would it mean to truly live forever in a way that you're going to outlive everything that sort of makes you, you contextually, the world you grew up in, the things you knew, the people you know, uh, even how you behave. Uh, what happens when all of that gets stripped away over and over again? We see movies where we see eternal or immortal characters, but very rarely do we see them in the process of gaining and losing the things. And that is a big element of all the moons. And yet set against this is this mother and daughter story, which is very tender. Then we have this story that's also tender. I think the, the thing about this movie is it's very, very gentle. And if you don't want to know any more, go out knowing for me, this is an 8.5. It's one of the strongest movies I think I've seen this year. It was so good uh, that even though it had subtitles, even though it was on the slower side, I watched this movie for my seven-year-old daughter. And again, the content here is not extreme. Uh, and she and I were both really into it and engaged by it. It is strong storytelling, even though the flavor of it's a little bit slower than there are some people that might get a little restless with it. But I think if you can handle a slow burn, it's very worthwhile. Trust me that the the, the horror thematic elements do show up in the movie. If you if you don't want to hear any more about that, just skip ahead. I'll, I'll put a, a note in here. And then for anyone else, and this isn't a giant spoiler, it's it's, it's apparent almost immediately once the, the character shows up, but uh, this is a vampire story. It's a story uh, that very specifically a vampire story, not a vague one, but it introduces the clans of vampires. It shows that the mother figure that, that uh, makes the decision to bite this girl is a vampire. One of the interesting wrinkles it brings to vampire lore is that you, as a vampire, can only, while you can hunt and feed if you choose to, you can only ever bite and turn one other person. So it's like a one-shot deal. So if you want to bring someone with you along on this journey, you get to do it one time, not multiple times. And that that emphasis is interesting because then it shows that these characters always have to make a choice. Like, who gets to come along or who do I bestow this gift to? Because if I bestow this gift, they may not they may not decide to be with me or they may decide make decisions that make them a detriment to the vampire society at large. And so all of that plays into this uh, in a really fascinating way. 
I strongly recommend the movie for anyone. It is not going to be your typical horror film. Know that going in. You're in more for a dark fantasy. Uh, you're not going to see a lot of bloodletting. You do see some blood. Most of it is the blood of chickens or the blood of small animals. Uh, there's not a lot of animal violence. I'm just saying that there's there's not much in the way of vampires attacking humans and things like that in this movie. That's not what this one particularly is about. Sounds really interesting, to be honest, because I'm not always that much of a fantasy guy, but dark fantasy kind of goes into those dark worlds and is almost on the verge of horror sometimes. So, and the fact that this is one of those, it is a vampire film, but it isn't kind of like the one uh, we saw not that long ago, uh, but the heart, what is it? The the heart beats if you tell it to. Yes. Uh, I I like this one better than that one, but I like both. Yeah. Or I was going to say, or the Hamiltons, like one of those ones where it's a veiled, vampire film which which i quite like so i definitely am gonna check it out uh subtitles don't bother me i'm so used to them that i yeah. don't even and, think and there's just not that much dialogue honestly to to cause much of a problem but and and it's not is that, is, i was gonna oh, sorry i was just gonna say is it like those schwarzenegger films in the 80s that were purposely not a lot of no no uh, not, dialogue not so for that, that reason no it's more of an observationalist movie so that you're observing them it's not that they don't talk it's just that we're not talking about something where you're eyes are scanning those it, let me put it this way if you there's so much in the movies conveyed through action uh and 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 the visuals that if you didn't understand the language and you never put the subtitles on you would still get the overall gist of the story just fine uh you know it's not one that is excessively dialogue heavy with lots of exposition and this isn't i guess i should clarify the reason i'm kind of calling it fantasy is not that this is veiled vampire this is specific vampire but it's not specific horror vampire you know there's not really a different fantasy element i guess what i'm trying to say is the vampirism is mainly used as a way for this director to explore the vehicle and the theme of immortality which is a fantastical concept uh, but the vampires are there. They're just not necessarily doing the things that it, that they would do in a full blown horror film. Gotcha. You know that does sound really good, and I, I definitely want to get to it before the end of the year because it could go on my other list. Yes. Like, would you consider it other as opposed to horror? No, I, I think it's. I think it belongs in the genre, in the same way that uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of other films. You know. But it's like it's got more of that, like almost Ingmar Bergman sort of. It's a full car, is what it is. It's full car, a hundred percent. It's just it's not scary. So if being a horror film requires it to be scary, or requires it to be, uh, in in you know, if you your definition of horror requires that of it, then maybe this isn't a quote unquote horror film. But I think that it belongs in that genre. But I think it can kind of go back and forth. I think that people okay. who don't enjoy horror will find. A lot to enjoy in this. I think that uh, it's uh, it's going to appeal to people outside of that. But I think that I feel comfortable saying it is a horror, just maybe horror drama. I I, I would I do feel better saying horror fantasy or horror drama. I kind of get that feel of a Gretel and Hansel. Yeah, yeah. Although, uh, yeah, it. But in some ways, like even less fearsome. I think that the Gretel and Hansel does become a horror movie. You know, with with a villain and with uh, here you're not talking about villains. Time is the villain in this film, if there is a villain. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and the fact that there's, a, like, a, I wouldn't say a moral debate, but you have to make a wise choice as to who you choose adds, a, adds an extra layer to it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very melancholy. I think melancholy more than than scary, but I still think it were. It's a, it, it's a horror film like 
like um, in the same sense that Guillermo del Toro's Kronos is a horror film. Gotcha. Alrighty. Well, I will be on the lookout and I advise our listeners as to as well, because it sounds well worth watching. So the next one I'm going to throw out there is one that I literally found at random, you know, on my various streaming sites. I don't always go for what's straight ahead. I kind of veer off the path. And one I found was from 1971. And I would, I honestly just about passed it by until I saw the cast was when I didn't know the movie is called the Anderson tapes. So that like that, what is that? Some kind of conspiracy thing? Is that a police thing? Is that a, a war movie? What is it all about? Well, the main actor, actually, I'll give you the synopsis first. After Duke Anderson is released from prison after 10 years for taking the rap for a scion of a mafia family, he cashes in a debt of honor with the mob to bankroll a caper. Huh? The main lead in this film is Sean Connery. Okay. Anything with Sean Connery uh, is worth watching. Although those who saw uh, Zandos uh, might uh, Zardoz. disagree with me. That, or Zardoz, sorry. Zardoz might disagree, but I still think anything with Sean Connery is worth watching. It also has, uh, oh, sorry. And it was directed by Cindy Lumet. Cindy Lumet has a long uh, curriculum vitae, including 12 Angry Men, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, A Stranger Among Us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is a star-studded cast. Beside Connery, there is Diane Cannon. There's my good buddy, Marty Balsam, who shows up in a lot of these kind of films. Ralph Meeker. Alan King puts in a really good performance. <laughs> Christopher... Uh, sorry, uh, Christopher King, uh, Garrett Morris of Saturday Night Live puts in a small but interesting one. Conrad Bain from <laughs> Different Strokes is in this. And the film debut of Christopher Walken. That's right. Yep. So, and the music is done by Quincy Jones. So it's worth watching, you know, just for that. And it's based on a novel by Lawrence Sanders. And those of you that are readers, especially thriller readers, know Lawrence Sanders very well. He, he writes a good book. So what's it about? So the movie opens with Connery being let out of prison. He's obviously spent some time in, in the joint and he's getting his things together. We find out through conversations with other inmates that he was in there for robbing banks. He's a thief. He likes to pull a caper. When he gets released, he goes to his ex-girlfriend's apartment, Diane Cannon, to get quote-unquote reacquainted, if you know what I mean. But the apartment is bugged. It's getting recorded by the police across the street. We don't know why. We don't know how it's occurred. We just know that everything from their reacquainting sessions to their bedroom talk is getting recorded and listened to. Diane Cannon, I got to say, is at her sultry, sexy best. Like she has a certain character that she kind of hones in on and she is really good at it. And so what happens is Connery has this idea to he look, he gets into the apartment and Cannon's apartment is a posh. It's a real swinging joint in New York City. And he gets the idea. I'm just out of prison. Sure, I might be on parole, but I'm still out of prison. 
let's rob the people in this apartment building. So he kind of cases the joint. But before he can kind of get the ball rolling, he has to get, it's almost like the Blues Brothers, let's get the band back together. He has to get his old cronies or people that he knew of in prison to be part of his crew. Martin Balsam plays, for me, my favorite character in the film. Martin Balsam plays a uh, antique dealer slash thief that is of the homosexual nature, is very flamboyant, but knows his stuff. Okay. So he's brought in there for the expertise and the knowledge of what to steal, what to take, because people there have a lot. It's a heist film. I love a good heist film. Walken plays one of the people that are also paroled at the same time as Connery. And he's kind of an electronics guy. He knows the ins and outs of electronics and how to debug things, etc. And he also has to deal with the mafia or the mobster. And Alan King plays one of the head mobsters that he has to go through and he needs some money to borrow off him, etc. And he's kind of paying in a debt. And so it's all building up to the heist. Unbeknownst to Connery, some people are on to him. And there's also a twist. And then we get to the actual buildup of the robbery. I don't want to go any further because I want you to see that the last 20, 25 minutes are actually pretty darn good. I, I enjoyed this. You know, it does take a while to get going. Okay. And none of the side characters to me, other than Marty Balsam, did I find all that engaging. Christopher Walken is interesting to see because you know who he is, but this is at the beginning of his career. Alan King isn't bad as a mafioso. I mean, Alan King is Alan King, uh, if you know a lot of his work, but uh, a lot of the side people aren't all that interesting. Diane Cannon looks good and she does a good job in her role, but she's not actually all that engaging. And Ralph Meeker as a police department uh, captain, he's the straight guy. You know, Ralph Meeker has been around forever. He did a lot of Westerns, et cetera. Uh, it's, it doesn't have the tension. Like, I think it's kind of like the great train robbery without all, you know, quite as much tension to it. It's, you know, we've had a lot of heist movies in the last year, a couple of years. I mean, you've got back the Italian connection. Uh, you've got, you know, Ocean's Eleven, you know, those, uh, th this year was the vault. You know, this kind of takes it back to the 1971. It's their version. And if you know the 70s TV and movie scene, it was a lot of uh, adventure stories and a lot of uh, thrillers based on things going wrong. You know, the uh, Avalanche and the Towering Inferno and stuff like that. This is kind of in that mold. You know, it's, uh, you know, and just a few years before that would have been, um, oh, what was the one with Robert Redford where they pulled a heist? The Sting. Uh, the Sting. Sorry, The Sting. Yeah, it, it's kind of trying to get into that one, but it's it doesn't quite get there to me. I, I, I enjoy a heist film, so I would recommend this. I give it a 7 out of 10. A, a decent caper film, but it wasn't quite compelling enough for me. What did you think about it, Nathan? I think it's worth mentioning that the film you talked about is 1971, correct? Correct. Right. So the movie, The Sting, that happened a few years before, hap has actually made in 1973. 
Uh, oh, really? Yeah, well, that's what's most interesting about this film, which I had never seen, Bill, and wasn't really aware it was out there, And which is strange because of being a Sidney Lumet movie, I've seen a lot of his films, but I had not seen his on Sean Connery, uh, who I'm a big fan of, too. I was surprised I hadn't. And it's interesting how many 70s films this movie actually uh, preempts because of some of what it's doing. Another movie I thought of that I don't think you mentioned was The Conversation with Gene Hackman. Uh, a lot okay, because of the yeah. surveillance element. Like, there's almost no moment where this movie doesn't have uh, video cameras sort of, you know, kind of honed in on the characters. And the idea, uh, we were talking about that in Kimmy, the idea that they're constantly under surveillance whether they know it or not. And that plays into, obviously, how the heist comes about and why Con- you know, why Connery does some of the things he does. And, you know, you've got this group over here and that group over there. And so it's interesting that a lot of these movies, it seemed like they would be, insp- you know, uh, inspirations for it actually occurred after it was made. So um, a lot of this stuff we're seeing, not that it's done for the first time per se, but it's it's not, I think it seems a little more fresh when you think of you look look at it through those eyes. That being said, I think you're right that it isn't necessarily 100% a successful, it's not successful some of those later movies. And a lot of it's down to a lack of tension. And even the way Connery plays his character, he plays him very droll and sort of, you know, uh, kind of sort of drawn back from things a little bit. The movie has a weird atmosphere to it where it doesn't seem to really want to be, it's more bemused than it is like intense. Uh, would you agree, Bill? Like it's, it seems like it yeah. purposely isn't trying to be this tension filled thriller. It's more of this sort of leisurely sort of heist film uh, with a, with an element of, of, of paranoia. <laughs> It's kind of caught between him trying to be suave. Yes. Yet with the police element and the tension. Yes. And and then the tension with him in canon. And it, I don't think it quite melds the two successfully. I, I think the sexual tension is more apparent than the suspense tension. <laughs> yeah. Now, I will say I did quite enjoy the last 20 minutes or so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah to, <laughs> let, me, let me say, this is a fun movie. I really liked it quite a bit. I'm glad that you recommended it to me. And I enjoyed it. Um, I, I Again, what I think it is, is it's an example of a movie that's trying a lot of things that aren't boilerplate at this point and setting up the stage for other films down the line to look at that and say, oh, let's, you know, they they try something similar and find new ways to do it or, or more interesting ways. Even Sidney Sydney Lament himself does some of the things he does in his film later on in his career in more successful ways. So in a lot of ways, it feels like a building block sort of movie. Connery had already played James Bond a couple of times by the time, I think, uh, at least once he played him, you know, but by the time this film comes out. And he's still developing his character, the, the kind of character that he often plays. And you see that genesis sort of happening here. Like you said with Diane uh, Cannon, uh, a lot of the work that she does later on is stemming from some of what she's she's trying out here. This feels very much like a movie where everyone's sort of experimenting with their style just a little bit. They're taking what they've done before and they're tweaking it a little bit. And that's what's kind of neat about watching it is that you're sort of watching a lot of things developing here that we can recognize later on. It feels uh, like a proto-movie in a lot of those ways, but I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a lot of, it's always fun to watch and I'm right on with you. I'd say I give it a seven. I enjoy a lot of the sidekick characters um, more. Yeah, I think they're a little more interesting necessarily than Connery's character. Connery's a good sort of uh, 
magnet for all of these things and 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 in his interactions with diane cannon and his interaction the other characters interactions with him make his character more interesting but he's a good lead i think for for this kind of film yeah you almost got the feel that cannon is a bond throwaway girl yeah although i like her better than some bond bond women in this movie agreed 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 i mean she she i think she had a little bit more depth acting wise but let's just say her role is diminished for the last half of the film. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's a fun movie, and I highly recommend it. And particularly for Heist, if you're a Heist fan, uh, again, it doesn't complete. I think that it, it's not as tight as it could have been. It isn't ever quite as um, urgent with its story as it could have been. But it's still a very, it's a very entertaining watch. Absolutely. So then, Nathan, what... Uh... What shall we hear about next? Okay. Well, I think the, the movie I'm going to talk about next is another one of our brand new to uh, theater films. And that's, uh, you know, it just came out this past weekend. I actually just got a chance to see it today. And it's probably one of the movies that, uh, it, as far as sort of the big blockbuster films go, uh, you know, the kinds of movies that we normally see Back in the day where you didn't start seeing these movies rolled out until May, you know, back in the 90s, that's when the summer quote unquote season started. Now the summer season starts at about Valentine's Day and just goes until the end of the year, right? Like everything is big, big uh, blockbuster bonanza tentpole movies all the way out. And so, but well, and, and, and part of that's because they've been sitting in a can and they're ready to come out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In some cases, this, this may or may not be one of those cases. I did. Th- I imagine a good bit of this was probably made while, uh, uh, during COVID, but you know, it's, it's quite possible given a lot of what's happening that, uh, it was made before then. Um, this is, uh, 2022's uncharted, which is based off of a, a video game, a, a PlayStation video game, a series of video games that definitely are uh, takeoffs from the Indiana Jones sort of school of adventuring with archaeological searches and ex- explorations into caverns and dense jungles, uh, lots of exciting action sequences involving planes and ships and ancient treasure and uh, intrigue and uh, solving puzzles, all of those sorts of things play into these games. I have played a few of these games uh, over the past few years. I I wouldn't consider myself necessarily a gamer by any means, but uh, there are certain video games I like to pick up and play through. The Uncharted series was one of them because every time I, uh, for a while there, when they would have a new console, the game they would have is whatever Uncharted game was out at the time. So I played the ones that were on the PlayStation 3, and then I played the more recent ones that were on on the, the, the PS4. But uh, I will give you the basic setup here according to IMDb, then I'll explain a little bit more about it. What we're getting here, though, is a big budget adventure in, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, we're talking about Indiana Jones National Treasure vein of things. Street smart Nathan Drake is recruited by seasoned treasure hunter Victor Sully Sullivan to recover a fortune amassed by Ferdinand Magellan and lost 500 years ago by the House of Moncada. The director here is Ruben Fleischer and... The stars are Tom Holland, plays Nathan Drake, Mark Wahlberg is Sully, Antonio Banderas is the most current member of that Moncada family that uh, that was responsible for losing the treasure to sort of uh, history. And what you have is a story where Nathan Drake is trying to follow the footsteps of his brother who's been sort of out of 
uh, out of his life for for years since they were both young together and they were uh in an orphanage and they were separated uh when they were he his brother left and they were uh didn't see each other uh, they would he would receive postcards from his brother but he would not uh, hear from him and then he went victor sullivan sully in this film who's again mark Wahlberg. when he meets back up with him he realizes that this guy is the person who probably last saw his brother and when he's telling him his look your brother was looking for this treasure and if you help me find it maybe we'll also find your brother and the so his 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 hope is his brother's still out there somewhere and this sets off a series of uh adventures and chases solving puzzles all of the things that in a video game make perfect sense to help you to pad out the actual play game sequences while giving you a story that's interesting to follow in between the actual segments of the game where you're controlling the character uh that works really well in the game in a big budget movie you have to work a little bit more because we don't get the controller we don't want to make it you don't want this film to feel just like you're watching someone else play a video game and I think for the most part, uh, Fleischer's movie kind of does avoid that. What he does manage to give us is a fun matinee adventure movie. Uh, what's good about it, first off, I think is the cast. It is fun to watch Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg play off of each other. This is not a very deep script. In fact, the script in this film is actually less compelling than the, than the storylines that are played out in the video games. Uh, what takes up the space is... The, all the characters that come into it. So you have Antonio Banderas, uh, who's fun as always. He doesn't have a very large role here. Uh, he's He doesn't make a very convincing villain because I just don't think he's in enough of the film to do that. Uh, but the other side characters are a lot of fun. Sophie Ali is Chloe Frazier, who's another adventurer who comes into the picture. And then you get a little bit of what's happening in the movies, like the one we just talked about, the Connery movie, where who's playing who and who can you trust in this this. Uh, ragtag adventuring game and this is where the indiana jones element comes in where we go from all of these various locations you know looking at the underground uh sorry the underground tunnels beneath a monastery at one point and uh there's one point where he goes to the they're they're inside of the church and as they're walking down you know one of the nuns walks up and tom holland says nuns why does it always have to be nuns so the movie has a sense of humor it's a lot of fun in the individual sequences and these characters give you enough energy in their back and forth that they kind of keep the movie running the big action adventure sequences. We've seen these sorts of things before. There's a lot of big special effects. Uh, a lot of these special effects no longer seem special to me. I, there's so much you can do now that watching a person tumble out of a plane as eight cargo containers fall to <laughs> hurtling towards them is not as exciting as it might have been for me and you know again in the mid 90s when it, this would have all been watching schwarzenegger would do this would have been very very thrilling or knowing oh that is tom cruise hanging off the side of the plane uh here it's not completely cgi but we see enough of it that our sense of reality we're not really wowed there is a there's a sequence later where there's something that's done with two ancient pirate ships that's quite impressive visually but overall it's just going to be a fun movie that kind of gets you from set piece to set piece to set piece this isn't very deep at all uh in some ways it's also a movie that's just almost a little too leisurely i wanted slightly more interesting characters i wanted more original action sequences but it has a fun, playful nature to it. And there's there's a battle inside of a, a 
basically like a walk-in pizza shop that is connected to this tunnel that Tom Holland is trapped in at the same time. And that scene's a lot of fun. The scene I mentioned towards the end in the jungle is a lot of fun. There's no moment of this movie where I was bored by it. And in a lot of moments where I was you know, happy and uh, smiling and just enjoying it. And my kids, my whole family, we went out to see it. Uh, had a great time with it too. This is very much in that national treasure vein. I'd say this movie's about on that same level. I don't always uh, love Wahlberg, but watching him kind of play off of uh, Holland here was fun. And is this a Bill? You reviewed a movie. Uh, you've reviewed a couple of movies that you refer to as "watch it on the on the couch with my wife" kind of movies. And this is about like that kind of movie, like that. Red Notice or the sorts of movies that kind of pop up on Netflix with just a slightly bigger budget with a slightly maybe more ambitious scope to them. But it's on about that same level. I'm going to give it a 6.5. My thought wasn't, oh, I can't wait to see this again. But I did think, hey, you know, of course, there's that stinger tip that, that throws out the potential of a sequel. I thought to myself, hey, you know what? I would watch a sequel, which is a little more than I thought when they made the last Tomb Raider movie, which was much more serious and would try to inject more uh, pathos into it, but I thought was more was less interesting, was more um, tedious to, to, to make it through than this movie, which was a fun little sprint, and when you were over, it kind of left you with a smile on your face. So would you characterize this as an adventure? Yeah. Like a thriller? Adv- adventure adventure in, the, in the Indiana Jones mold, for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Again, National Treasure those kinds of films, the Tomb Raider movies. A little, a, little, a, a little bit of Romancing the Stone thrown in there? A little, but I think it doesn't have the personality of Romancing the Stone. The, the important element of... Per- okay. And that was one of the things I felt strongly, that's why this movie's not higher, or is because while there's a kind of... There's a pleasant camaraderie between these characters, the writing is not there to really give you the humor that underscored both the Indiana Jones movies and those Romancing the Stone movies, which I think this kind of, this sort of uh, movie, it's almost closer to some of those movies that might've been made in the forties or fifties where that element of humor wasn't, wasn't necessarily uh, uh, evident. You know, we need to see movies like the original King Solomon's Minds and things like that with Stuart Granger. You know, there was a stoic uh, sensibility to them, but there wasn't always a lot of, humor and i think the humor element could have been stronger or the creativity could have been stronger there to give you a movie that was maybe a little bit quirkier i mean this is uh, much more close to those sorts of movies those adventure movies we got in the 90s you know like a cutthroat island or something like that it's perfectly fun uh you you get into watching it but it doesn't necessarily hit that next level where it gives you these characters you're always going to remember and I don't think it even does what it does quite as well as the video games is based off of. That's the other thing I'm going to say. Some of the action and some of the the events, the set pieces, they do feel a little bit generic because you get the idea that, hey, I can see how playing this would be more interesting than just watching this. It doesn't completely have that problem. It's not like, again, I was talking to somebody about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I said, you know, I think one of my issues is watching that film is like, playing a you know so so round of dead by daylight on the playstation you know which is a video game where you get to be the killer or you get to be the survivors and then the game starts and either one is hunting or one is running and that's kind of how i felt here 
they give us enough that you get into this as a fun matinee movie and not just, oh, it's, you know, it's a video game I'm watching. Yeah, it's one of those films that sounds like it's, it's good in the moment, but 20 minutes later, you're not going to remember it. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think it gives yeah. enough room that someone could come back and build a movie on the on the back of this one, and it could be even better. So you gave this a six five, a six five. That you know, I I think that I can see people going on either side of that, like coming down saying, hey, "It was a six. It was fun. I enjoyed it. That's it." And and being a little higher and saying, "You know what? I I'm in. I'm in for this series." You know, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I was very pleased with what I was watching. It was fun to see it on the big screen. It has just enough big pop moments that it does kind of justify being there. You know, I wasn't thinking, "Oh, I you know I paid to see this." I say ultimately, I think it's it's definitely a rental. And if you're really into if you if you're into this kind of movie, if you're into the video games, it's probably worth the theater, the theater visit. Now, the next one I'm going to do, I'm going to bring back the veil a little bit and you kind of get into the mind of me. That's a dangerous spot. (laughs) I had just put my daughter to bed. I was walking down the stairs and for some reason in my head, I thought I'm going to throw on Tubi because if I got nothing to watch, I can always find something on Tubi. But they always give suggestions and based upon an algorithm of previous movies that you've watched. And I said in my head, before I go downstairs, I'm going to watch the third movie that's a suggestion. Gosh, that's Regardless. dangerous. That's true to be roulette right there, folks. That's, that's true VOD roulette. <laughs> that is true. But I'm a sucker for punishment or pleasant surprises. So I went to Tubi. I literally turned it on. I went to my third suggestion. And it was a movie, and it looked like it was genre-specific. I was beyond excited. It looked like it had a little bit of comedy, a little bit of sci-fi, maybe some action thrown in there, maybe a little bit of uh, titillation. I didn't know what it was going to be about. It was called Iron Sky, The Coming Race from 2019. Unbeknownst to me, I did not realize until I spoke with my good friend here, Nathan, it is the second in a series of Iron Sky films. I don't believe there's a third one, but gosh knows if there's going to be one. This has an interesting cast. Now, the director is Timo Vurensola, who did the original Iron Sky. He did one called Star Wreck in the Perkening. I can only imagine. Which was just a pure, a pure full-blown, like... Uh, Star Trek like spoof, basically, like a the naked gun of Star Trek. Oh, that's what I figured. I figured it was something it's kind of like the the, the uh, sci fi version of Scary Movie, uh, yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. And he also did Jeepers Creepers Reborn, which I didn't see. I did not either. Uh, it has, has Lara Rossi, who was in uh, 2018's Robin Hood, and I guess she was probably in the first Iron Sky, uh, Vladimir Berlikov, Kit Dale. And then two names you will know that I was surprised to see in. Uh, industry veteran Udo Kier and Canadian comedian Tom Green. So what is what do I get myself into by doing literally VOD roulette? The description is as follows on IMDb. A follow-up to the film Iron Sky of 2012, in which Nazis plan to take over the world after lying dormant in a secret military base on the moon. Okay, so I got a, a little bit of the uh, 90s sci-fi thrillers. I got a little bit of action. There's Nazis involved. All righty. Okay, then I get to the film. 
<laughs> it begins in 2000. It begins in 2018, and moon Nazis attack the Earth, and a nuclear war has occurred. And obviously, the Nazis have taken over the Earth, and they've enslaved whatever people survived the nuclear war. It cuts then to 2041 on the Nazi moon base. And the remaining humans are there. They're in, in squalor. They're kind of all herded into one spot. You know, they're living in pretty crappy conditions. Uh, there's not a lot of energy and a lot, not a lot of things to do. Oh, yeah. You know what the tagline for this is? Let's make Earth great again. <laughs> so you kind of understand where the uh, director may be coming from. So you have the haves and the have-nots. And there's one human... Rossi, who vows to take the planet back. She wants to use their energy and her youthful exuberance to try to re recapture the glory of the planet for the have-nots as opposed to the haves. There's an interesting role by Tom Green. Tom Green plays a cult leader who has this really odd following. And he's in the like white suits. And sometimes Tom Green is really over the top and wacky. Here he's very reserved. He uses his his uh, stance as a man and his quiet reserve as the playing card in this. Udo Kier plays a Nazi leader, but a, a somewhat sympathetic Nazi leader, but, but he's still a Nazi. I'm going to get through this really darn quick, ladies and gentlemen. Rossi goes to Middle Earth, as described by Kier, to find a power source with a group of various humans living on the planet. Also, there are a group of Nazis that look like they're from alien nation. Uh, there is a pseudo Maggie Thatcher character. There's a pseudo uh, Adolf Hitler character. There's a battle. People get involved in dealing with dinosaurs and chasing down dinosaurs and people go around this middle earth here's what i put it's not overly funny or funny or engaging you know like there's a couple shooting moments there's a little bit of blood but, but it's not it's not good it's not good it's a it, it it's a, a better production value than you might expect but it's got a bad storyline the middle earth is run by nazi a hitler dictator and reptile people if you watch YouTube long enough and you get that theory of that there's the reptiles that are kind of taking over the earth and you can see it through certain uh, news footage reels, uh, this will tie into that, I guess. Uh, there's a Margaret Thatcher reptile person who, oh, by the way, killed by a fireball. And you get to see Hitler riding on the back of a T-Rex. I mean, that's worth the price of admission there. And I, mean, I really don't want to talk anymore about this film. Three out of ten. That's what I'm giving it. Three out of ten. If you're a, a sucker for punishment, you like bad sci-fi adventure fantasy, or you're a completist for the first movie, I guess you're going to watch it. But it is free on Tubi. Don't pay for this, folks. A three out of ten. What do you think about it, Nathan? A three out of ten. Yep. It's stunning. It seems stunning as we're listening to this and all these things that you mentioned. And then if you were to watch the trailer and you see all of this in action, and then you hear Bill, who has been very generous with some very bad movies in my opinion uh over the over our time doing this to give this movie a three out of ten it seems like it 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 seems bewildering but 
this movie is bewildering because like there's almost nothing that you if i i saw this after you mentioned i didn't even know that they had made a sequel i had seen the original i'll talk about in a second but everything you just talked about with with reptilian margaret thatcher like literal reptilian margaret thatcher and when you talk about uh, I, I have I no, obviously, uh, you know, I, I, the Nazis have been done to death as villains. But when you talk about a world where the Nazis are riding dinosaurs, that's how they previously were on the moon. Uh, and, and, and Tom Green is his cult leader. This all sounds sounds like fun, terrible. And then I watched the trailer and the trailer looks like the production values of a film you might see in theaters. The dinosaurs look good right? Like the T-Rex and the Triceratops yep. that they at one point have a kind of cart made of bones attached to it. And they're, they're rolling across this. Now, Middle Earth, it's not the Middle Earth. It's not the um, proto-England Middle Earth of Tolkien. <laughs> this is literally like the center of the earth. And those, those reptilian, they almost reminded me, they're a little bit between halfway between alienation and the creatures from the original V. Uh, you, these reptiles, and they're called the Vril. And here I'll drop some science for you, Bill. Uh, they're kind of Edward Bueller Lytton, who's known for writing some of the the most uh, the worst pulpiest uh, early uh, proto Victorian like uh, fiction of all time. <laughs> He's the guy who literally started the, his book with "It Was a Dark and Stormy Night." <laughs> so uh, he had he had a, a novel called "The Coming Race," and the those were those creatures were called the Vril. There, the Coming Race is the subtitle here. That's a little that's a little uh, tidbit that isn't going to impress anyone and doesn't make this movie better at all. <laughs> this movie is every bit as scattershot as all over the place and as ridiculous. And honestly. I can't believe because I am a bad movie fan. I do like bad movies when they're done right. When it would like, and I don't see bad movies, but these kind of off the wall movies that take a lot of, of elements and a lot of inspirations that shouldn't go together and sort of mash them together. This is usually absolutely my jam. And this image of the, of, of the moon base and them riding the T-Rexes and the side, this pulp that kind of comes from Edgar Rice Burroughs, I love all of that stuff. So in theory, this should be up my alley, but it is not. And it's done in such a way that there are moments of enter. I was more entertained, I think, than you were, but it was a very minor entertainment. And it was a minor entertainment in between a lot of frustration and a lot of tedium. The original Iron Sky did deal with Nazis coming back from a moon base and it, it was completely crowdfunded. And so you saw these images and these special effects and the steampunk sort of look that the film had, and it was impressive. And then you saw the film and the movie is at odds with itself because it had all these big special effects action sequences that weren't that thrilling mixed in with this satire that almost worked that Julie Dietz's character is sent to earth to bring in the first uh, wave of Nazis to take over the earth. And she comes to the realization that she has been basically gaslighted her entire life to believe that the Nazis were on the right side of the war. And then when she gets to earth and gets to pick up a history book for the first time, she realizes it's not the case. This movie has almost none of that sort of satirical humor. in it. Although there is this weird dinner party where there's reptilian, like Kim Jong-un and like you pointed out, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and Caligula of all people and Hitler. And, and that idea is so weird. You want it to work. And I want the scenes of them trying to, uh, you know, 
turn the tide of the war by having these battles on dinosaurs like that you should this should be an eight out of ten right for me who's a huge dinosaur kid growing up and is still into that sort of thing and into this absurdity that's that's in the film and some of the characters are fun to watch but I wouldn't know it's not their characters. I think the performers are fun to watch. Kit Dale, who's this big muscle-bound Australian guy, he's kind of fun. Julie Dietz, who, uh, who Julie Dietz was in the first film, she's here and it's inexplicably well, not inexplicably because the movie jumps forward, but they make her an older character. Uh, there is a scene, you know, where you have her sort of uh, having hand-to-hand combat with the T Rex, <laughs> which is which is wild. Tom Green is odd in the movie. He looks even kind of odd. His character is strange. But it's just little hints and flashes. You, you're right. There's not much to say about this movie. They throw everything at the screen, at the film, without understanding how a movie dramatically works. It's how it feels to me. There's no sense of pacing. There's no sense of how to tell the story in a dramatic way. It's just such a mess. It's so frustrating to see the resources and the ideas just kind of get flushed down the drain i'm a little higher i didn't completely it wasn't a completely uh, uh bad experience for me but i it's a four out of ten it's it's really an avoid you know yeah uh, i mean Unless i've been you, quite generous on some yeah. things but i i could barely i could barely get through this <laughs> again i didn't see the first one i didn't realize there was a better one i went on this totally blind yeah, yeah let me let me and, back up uh, on that i'm gonna back my rating up <laughs> i'm gonna say this this is a i i'll go i'll go 3.5 but you're you're right this is not a good movie it's a mess <laughs> there you go folks both of us how often are both of us below four I don't, I don't even know if Feeders 2 got both of us below four. Oh, this is, I, I would watch this again over Feeders. Uh, I think I gave Feeders a zero, but I mean, oh, that's true. yeah, this is, it's just too, it's, it's too much and not enough simultaneously. All right. Well, I want to finish up here with one that's a little bit out of the box from what we do, but this being the Russian nesting dolls of podcasts, we are all over the place anyways. And those of you that listen to me know that I love my sports. I love my movies. I love my music. I love my family. Another one of my passions is cooking. I love to cook. I love to bake. I love seeing the pictures like of the... what you cook when you send it to me. It always looks so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, just yesterday did uh, homemade uh, Yorkshire puddings, which actually are pretty easy to make, but I like seeing how high I can get them to puff up. They're great. So I do, when I'm not watching sports or I'm not watching a movie with my wife or myself and I'm killing time, I do like to watch cooking shows. I have a whole long lifetime of watching Julia Child and Jacques Pepin and uh, the Galloping Gourmet and uh, uh, such growing up. So I'm always on the lookout and my wife, Jennifer, I love her to death always finds these cooking shows on the various streaming services. One that I that we watched a couple seasons of before on Tubi is a series called My Kitchen Rules. Now, My Kitchen Rules has a series in New Zealand, in England, and Australia. It's franchised out into three, and I've seen all three. Now, what the premise of that is, is they get a group of pairs together they could be sister brother they could be uh, husband wife they could be cousins they could be besties whatever it is and they get them together from various parts of whatever country they're in 
So the one that's most popular is the Australian one. And they go to dinner parties and they each get the chance to host a dinner party. And they have two main chefs, uh, Pete and Manu, who are Michelin starred top of the line chefs. And they will grade each course they have at these individual dinner parties. So you'll start with 12 and then you'll work your way down. And they each come from a various province in Australia or in England or in New Zealand. And not only is it the dynamic of the judging from the menu and Pete, you also get judging from each of the individual couples who are eating as well. So do you judge based on the quality of the food or do you judge strategically? It's a little bit of survivor, but I wouldn't say higher brow, but there's not as much backstabbing, although it does get into it here and there. And it's, and it's one of these things where we just watched it on a whim. I watched it on a whim. I saw it. And, but when you actually dig into it, there's like 32 episodes for a season. Once you get sucked into past number two and three, you got to see how the whole thing works out. Well, my kitchen rules in Australia has been going since 2010 and it's still going. And the one in England, I think only ran a couple of years. The one in New Zealand only ran in a couple of years, but they're all on Tubi. And I've mentioned it to people before. If you're looking for something different, but you still want a bit of drama, a little bit of intrigue, and you actually want to pick up a few cooking tips, watch My Kitchen Rules, which it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Jen and I stopped watching because I found they started to focus more on the prima donna and the drama of the people as opposed to the cooking. So we stopped watching because I'm not into I'm not into that. I stopped watching reality shows uh, i haven't seen survivor since about 2002 i think it's still going um but i got tired of of the drama end of it and that's why we've stopped watching that but when they actually focus on the cooking and the game itself it's a really interesting show to watch now the other one i'm going to mention is called the great british menu which is on prime and what happens there is They take three top chefs from the various parts of England and Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales, and they go in groups of three and they have to compete in different courses head to head against each other. And then they, they have a master judge that judges them and it pairs them down to two after four rounds. And then they sit in front of a panel of three food experts and a special guest. And the end game for each season is you get to go to some master gala and be a chef that gets to have one of the courses. So the one season I watched, it was uh, a big to-do at the Queen's Palace, and you get to have a dinner in the main uh, ballroom. The one that's currently on right now I'm watching is the, the chefs at the end who finally get their dishes approved after playdown after playdown get to serve at the Wimbledon Tennis Club, their big gala. What I like about the British shows and the particularly the British shows is they don't get flashy. You don't got Gordon Ramsay or the, any of those kind of people, you know, in it just to be splashy, to get on TV. They're actually quite cordial. There is no clock counting down. There is no soundtrack running in the background. There is no look at the evil eye. The chefs help each other. 
and you know they help them plate the food they they help them fry something up if someone needs help because ultimately the goal of it is to get the best food out there which i find a quite refreshing approach if you've ever watched the great british bake off which i know is quite popular and there's an american version there's a canadian version it's very much in that vein so if you're on prime and you have that i would highly recommend the great british menu but what it's weird though cuz it's a, a, a listener of the show and who's been on before Hugh Lloyd I messaged Hugh Lloyd and I said do you know the show he goes oh yeah it's been going since 2006 and the chefs that win that end up getting such a celebrity to them so everybody knows who the top guy in Wales is or who the top guy in Northern Ireland is because they've been on the show and if you win the whole darn thing that becomes even more of a celebrity status so I'm enjoying it so far. The weird thing is, though, on Prime, it's been going since 2006. They only have certain selected seasons. So you might get season seven and eight, and then I'm watching season 11 and 12, but I don't know what happened through season one through six. Right. So if yeah. there's anybody there listening, if there's anybody here listening on in the UK, tell us how we can connect with seasons one through six, at least in Canada. Maybe the American Prime is different. I don't know. But I would highly recommend both My Kitchen Rules and The Great British Menu. Yeah, and I've seen some of uh, my kitchen rules, and that's it's, it's a good show. My daughter is really into cooking shows quite a bit, but uh, and I, I tend to like those better than some of our uh, our American cooking shows. But um, yeah, they're they're always fun to watch. Yeah, they're good. They're I, I and I, I hasten to say time killer because you learn a few things. You know, if you're someone who doesn't mind dabbling in the kitchen, you'll you'll pick up a few tips. So it's not just a time waster to have on as filler, you know, take a few notes and maybe your uh, meatloaf may turn out a little better next time. <laughs> yeah. Meatloaf. If you, if you, if you want to try meatloaf. So, meatloaf. or it, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never made a beef Wellington. I'm not going to go that far, but you know, I haven't tried it, but I'd be up for trying it. I think for trying, but I mean, yeah. I don't know if it would be successful. <laughs> No, I, I've never really used phyllo dough, so who knows? Yes, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's about it for us uh, tonight. But we are planning. I say we're going to plan to do this regularly. I'm going to honestly try to have an episode out, like uh, possibly even at the end of, um, not the end, but maybe at the beginning of of every week. We'll see how things go. It's always hard to promise that, but uh, some of these will be shorter than, than this one. Uh, there are a lot of movies coming out next week that I plan to see and have some reviews for, including the, uh, the Dave Grohl Foo Fighters horror film studio six, 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 which I, uh, which I'm looking forward to. And uh, there's, I was going to say to Nathan, does that not sound perfect for strange frequencies? It does indeed. <laughs> it does indeed. And then uh, there also Peter Dinklage is in a new version of Cyrano that it's not, it's not a horror or fantasy, but a uh, worse sci-fi for that matter. But I'm looking forward to, to catching it. Uh, there's a movie coming out this coming week. Uh, Strawberry mansions is finally making its way to streaming i believe uh, it, i think for rent and it was a movie i also strawberry mansion i should say that uh is also i saw at last year's sundance so that will be that'll be coming up on the horizon uh to review and we've got i know uh bill and i have been watching some movies in tandem that we're looking forward to reviewing uh i will have some tv reviews next week of uh the uh, have my review for the entirety of the peacemaker tv show that was all with john cena that was on HBO Max and is a spinoff from uh, last summer's Suicide Squad movie, so they got they got that out there pretty quick. 
Uh, but we'll have that review and also a review of the first episode of From, which is a new horror thriller on Epics uh, that stars Harold Perrineau, who was on Lost. And uh, in this show, it has some similarities with Lost. So we'll have that for next time. The last thing I want to mention, we had planned back last year to do a episode that was going to be sort of like the one year uh, anniversary of the revitalization, if you will, of Phantom Galaxy. And so we had asked a lot of our uh, fellow podcasts, uh, a lot of the podcasts that we listen to, to sort of submit and record segments with us, talking about their favorite sci-fi and fantasy movies. We had a lot from all over the place. What we've decided to do with that is instead of putting in one big kind of unwieldy uh, dump of information, we're going to piece it out uh, at the end of these review episodes uh, and give us an, uh, what we'll do is Bill and I will spotlight a different podcast each episode, talk a little bit about why we think it's worthwhile, uh, what you, the audience, uh, can expect to, to hear from it. And then we'll also have segments from the, those involved in the podcast talking about their their favorite uh, sci-fi and fantasy movies to tie it back into Phantom Galaxy. And we'll start doing that every week. And wh- what we will do is kind of keep this a revolving door. So people that weren't able to be involved uh, when we did it the first time through will have opportunity as we move forward. And I think it'll just be a fun way to kind of spotlight other podcasts and what's going on uh, to give give them some, some spotlight and to also uh, just get to hear more about everyone's favorite science fiction and fantasy movies. I think it's always cool to hear what movies inspired people, what movies uh, people really hold uh, close. So that's uh, that's what's going to be coming up, and we will keep that on a regular basis. I think we, we're at a point where we can manage that and have it out. And in between, you're going to get all the other episodes that we do with fan, with uh, Illustrated Fan and with um, uh, Strange, Frequencies. Yeah, Strange Frequencies. Uh, we've got a, a, a book-centric one that's coming up. And then, of course, the episodes where we, we we bring people on and talk about specific movies and things like that. So, But in between, we're going to try to keep these review movies running. And Bill and I are uh, going to be bringing VOD Roulette back very soon as well. Yes, part, yes, as, yes. As I can't this. wait. So, uh, But until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy. And uh, uh, check us out where you, you can find us at Pod, Phantom Galaxy, podbean.com. You can find us over at the Facebook group. Please go over there and uh, join up. It's... Uh, a great it's a lot of fun we've got a great community going there we've got quite quite a few people are on there now and there's always a lot of great stuff shared we're going to be doing some giveaways and things this coming week uh i had last week uh family was kind of down with, with sickness so i didn't get a chance to do it so i've got a couple of uh we've got a whole bunch of stuff stockpiled that i need to start giving away on on the show and i'll be doing that primarily through to start with primarily through the facebook group you can also find us on twitter at phantom galaxy and Bill, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we uh, head out? The, the only other thing I wanted to mention is our Facebook group is now up to 422 members, which is amazing. And if you know anybody that would be interested, please pass the show along. Let them know about us on Facebook and Twitter and our various social medias. You can follow both of us on uh, Letterboxd. But really, we just want to hear from you. So give us a shout. Please engage in the posts. Please give us any ideas. Nathan and I are always open to listening to what you guys want to hear and see and stuff. So uh, give us a shout. Stay healthy. Stay happy. And stay warm because I'm not. <laughs> and last thing I'll say, the if you're listening to this right now, the very next episode you can hear 
will be our illustrated fan episode with myself, Dave Becker, and guest Christian Connect, who who had joined us when we reviewed uh, the Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. We did a Miyazaki episode. We're going to do our favorite Disney films on that episode. So we, we count down a top 10. So stay tuned for that. That'll be next. And then we will have, we'll be back with the review show next week. So until next time, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.